All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John. And I'm Ben. And today is a very special episode as it's our 45th episode of Worthy. And that is for The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, The Godfather. Now, before we jump in, we always like to cover, you know, some bases, some nice little cold open. And I want to talk about the gangster picture. We haven't really seen a best picture fall under this category or this genre of film. So I want to kind of go through a little kind of brief history of the gangster film, mafia films, and kind of catch up to where we are now in our point of history. So the gangster genre was born in the silent era but came into its own with sound, highlighting squealing tires, sirens, and gunfire. The term gangster actually referred to politicians in the 1890s. Criminal slash gangster films are one of the most enduring and popular film genres. They date back to the early days of film during the silent era. In fact, even Edwin S. Porter, silent short western The Great Train Robbery from 1903 has often been considered a classic hold-up story in a chase film, a movie about crime. Now here's a little quote from The American Cinema by Julia Brady Jenner, and this is from the chapter The Gangster Film. Quote, after the turn of the century, it denoted criminals. The first talkie gangster film was The Lights of New York in 1928, with the onset of the Great Depression, banks closing, and people out of work and going hungry. Americans came to trust the system less. The gangster sometimes becomes the, quote, tragic hero. Prohibition was a great way to make money along with gambling and other illegal activities. So gangsters made good money, dressed nicely, and led with a look that was glamorous, and they lived glamorous lives. Audiences were somehow fascinated by them, and in a time where it was much of a struggle just to survive, perhaps it was also a great genre for escaping reality, which makes sense. So from here, 1934, we have the code era so pre-code leading up until you know the late 1890s up until the 30s we had a lot more violence in films you see a lot of these older mafia films like little caesar from 1931 or scarface by howard hawks which is one of my favorite old school 30s gangster picture you can see that they're pretty violent more violent than what we see after the code era in 1934 and then we move on further there are still some mafia pictures that are kind of like pushing the genre as much as they can. The Roaring Twenties from the 1939, starring James Cagney again. And we even have On the Waterfront. We have Brando here, which I think you could argue is also a mafiosa kind of film. It's about, you know, longshoremans and union workers, but there's definitely a crime gangster kind of aspect to that film. And of course, you know, we have some in the 50s and the 60s, some failed gangster films but of course you get up to 1972 with the godfather and obviously the genre has continued to groan and spread and we get masterpieces like goodfellas from scorsese and casino and even the departed or the irishman uh, i also love brian de palma's uh, great great film carlito's way which is a, such an underrated mafiosa film but ben i wanted to just jump off of all that all this history of the mafia genre, the gangster picture, and I want to just hear your general thoughts. Like, what do you like about the mafia picture? What do you like about gangster movies? Yes, I 
you know, as you're talking about some of the earlier movies, like I'm noting that like some of them are more more about like the heist, and I and I feel like it's kind of like two different um, gangster movies or mafia movies that we know today. So there's um, there's the the big heist, the we're, we have a big score, we're gonna, we're gonna steal, we're gonna rob a bank, rob a train, you know, rob rob somebody, and whereas what kind of the Godfather became you know on the waterfront sort of did this as well where it's about connections within the mob it's like you know very personal look at it the the inner workings the relationships between it how it all works and i i find that to be some of the more interesting ones and obviously you can combine that like goodfellas combines both of those ideas like very well but a lot of that movie is about um the relationships but they do obviously make a big score uh in the middle of the movie which kind of is the impetus for kind of the climax of it. Uh, but in The Godfather, there's no like big heist. It's about family, and it it's kind of like it turns these really awful people into humans that you grow to really love and admire, which is kind of like what happens in The Sopranos. The Sopranos takes so much inspiration from The Godfather where the mo- like I hate to even call it a gangster movie because it's not a gangster movie. It's a mafia movie. It's a family thing. It's a you know it's very personal and 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 that and it's like so disturbing and and we've talked about this before you know with war movies and and you know how like it's so much violence that we're taking but we can't get away from it we love the entertainment and the shock value of it and this is one of the most violent movies or at least one of the first violent movies that was so like in your face about it that for a mainstream audience so um yeah i i love uh gangster movies i you know there's a a through line I, I you know that I talked about before when we were talking about the French connection to like an American gangster movie which came out thirty years later. This movie kind of kickstarts all of that. So you know, I love like a Bronx tale as well. So yeah, there's a lot of just great gangster mafia movies that uh that we all can enjoy and love. Yeah, that's really why I love the genre, like this subgenre of itself, because it is like an amalgamation of different genres really you know and it can change depending like you said with like the more heist focused or the more crime focused but really my favorite are the melodramas that are mixed with action and I think that's a perfect definition of the godfather it's a melodrama action film you know if you want to just remove the mafia the gangster kind of title it's it is a melodrama I mean it's about a family and their inner struggles and then yeah maybe they uh send some people to the fishes, but uh, it's all about the family, you know? And I mentioned Brian De Palma. He's made some amazing films. I mentioned Carlito's Way, which I really, really love, but I didn't mention, obviously, he remade Scarface. And I think Scarface is, like, extremely important for defining the the genre, this subgenre. It, it, and I think we can look at Paul Muni, who starred in Scarface and was such a compelling actor for the time, and especially for the 1930s. He is such a compelling, like, lived-in actor, and I think you can definitely point to how he inspired Brando moving forward in The Godfather. But obviously, there's more than just the melodrama of the family. We love the action. We love the violence. We love people getting riddled with bullets. It's entertaining, you know? It's freaky and scary, but come so close to these characters and they become family, it makes it even more heartbreaking or tragic when one of them has to get killed. So is there anything else that you would like to hit on on the gangster topic here or the mafia picture, Ben? So we um, we were talking before we started recording, and this is what I wanted to ask you about 
when we were talking about epic movies and because they're you know they're a list and tons of lists of people come out with and everyone always cites the godfather as the best gangster movie but when you look at epics it's never really listed as an epic but everyone always talks about it's a top 10 movie and we can get into how critics approach this movie while we're in our main discussion but is the godfather an epic man we can i think we could have a whole podcast just about that question and just about looking at the film with that question and I think like when we were talking a little earlier, there's like subcategories and subgenres of the epic, the religious epic, the historical epic. And maybe we should have the mafia epic. I think I do think the Godfather is an epic. I do think even Goodfellows is an epic, you know? The Irishman certainly is an epic in my opinion. And maybe we need like that as a title. The the mafia epic, the gangster epic, something along those lines. And I think where people would argue is that it is melodramatic in a way where it's a lot about the family. It's a lot of interiors, a lot of people talking back and forth. But that doesn't discount the level of grandiose that this film has. The wide shots, the different locations, the beautiful, you know, city landscape of Sicily and like the countryside. And then we cut back to like the inner city and outside of uh, New York. And there's just so much that we see throughout this film that I certainly think it could be considered as an epic. And one thing I think that people don't often talk about in terms of epics, but you really need a huge change, like a transition of time or a change of character. You need to show this like growth or evolution of time or through a character in order to really, for my own opinion, kind of achieve that epic status. You need to feel like you've gone through something and you've like changed with the film yourself. And I think that's perfect example of the Godfather and Michael's story and his story with his father and how it's changed throughout the film and how the Michael that we first meet is entirely different than the Michael that we see close the door on his wife. So, Ben, what do you think? Would you classify the Godfather as an epic film or just an epic? I would classify as an epic uh, for pretty much the same reasons and exactly what you're saying about the changing character and watching the growth and the birth of Michael Corleone, which is subtle in many ways and i think it and i want to get into that there i think there's a lot we should get into so i i want to i want to save it all john i really want to discuss with you this main question though and that is is the godfather worthy of the best picture award of 1972 The Godfather. Don Vito Corleone, head of the Mafia family, decides to hand over his empire to his youngest son, Michael. However, his decision unintentionally puts the lives of his loved ones in grave danger. In 1945 New York City, Corleone crime family Don Vito Corleone listens to requests during his daughter Connie's wedding to Carlo. Michael, Vito's youngest son and a former Marine, introduces his girlfriend, Kay Adams, to his family at the reception. Johnny Fontaine, a popular singer and Vito's godson, seeks Vito's help in securing a movie role. Vito sends his consigliere, Tom Hagen, to persuade studio president Jack Waltz to offer Johnny the part. Waltz refuses Hagen's request at first, but soon complies after finding the severed head of his prized racing horse in his bed. Near Christmas, drug baron Salazzo 
asked Vito to invest in his narcotics business and for protection from the law. Vito declines, citing that the involvement in narcotics would alienate his political connections. Suspicious of Salazzo's partnership with Tatalia crime family, Vito sends his enforcer Luca Brazzi to Tatalia on an espionage mission. Brazzi is garroted to death during the initial meeting. Later, enforcers gun down Vito and kidnap Hagen. With Vito's firstborn Sonny now in command, Salazzo pressures Hagen to persuade Sony to accept the narcotics deal. Vito survives the shooting and is visited in the hospital by Michael, who finds him unprotected after the NYPD officers on Salazzo's payroll cleared out Vito's guards. Michael thwarts the attempt on his father's life, but is beaten by a corrupt captain, Mark McCluskey. After the attempted hit at the hospital, Sonny retaliates with a hit on Bruno Tatalia. Salazzo and, his, and McCluskey request to meet with Michael and settle the dispute. Michael fiends interest and agrees to meet, but hatches a plan with Sonny and Corleone Capo Clemenza to kill them and go into hiding. Michael meets Salazzo and McCluskey at a Bronx restaurant after retrieving a handgun planted in the bathroom by Clemenza. He shoots both men dead. Despite a clampdown by the authorities for the killing of the police captain, the five families erupt in open warfare. Michael takes refuge in Sicily and Fredo, Vito's second son, is sheltered by Mo Green in Las Vegas. Sonny publicly attacks and threatens Carlo for physically abusing Connie. When he abuses her again, Sonny speeds to their home but is ambushed and murdered by gangsters at a highway toll booth. In Sicily, Michael meets and marries a local woman, Apollonia, but she is killed shortly thereafter by a car bomb intended for him. Devastated by Sonny's death and tired of war, Vito sets a meeting with the five families. He assures them that he will withdraw his opposition to their narcotics business and forego avenging Sonny's murder. His safety guaranteed, Michael returns home to enter the family business and marries Kay. Kay gives birth to two children in the early 1950s. With his father nearing the end of his life and Fredo not suited to lead, Michael assumes the position of head of the Corleone family. Vito reveals to Michael that it was Don Brazzini who ordered the hit on Sonny and warns him that Bronzini would try to kill him at a meeting organized by a traitorous Corleone Capo. With Vito's support, Michael relegates Hagen to managing operations in Las Vegas as he is not a wartime consigliere. Michael travels to Las Vegas to buy out green steak in the family's casino and is dismayed to see Fredo is more loyal to green than his own family. In 1955, Vito dies of a heart attack while playing with his grandson. At Vito's funeral, Tessio asks Michael to meet with Barzini, signaling his betrayal. The meeting is set for the same day as the baptism of Connie's baby. While Michael stands at the altar as the child's godfather, Corleone hitmen murder the dons of the five families, plus Green, and Tessio is executed for his treachery. Michael extracts Carlo's confession to playing a part in Sonny's murder, assuring Carlo he is only being exiled, not murdered. Afterward, Clemenza garrets Carlo, though. Connie confronts Michael about Carlo's death while Kay is in the room. Kay asks Michael if Connie is telling the truth and is relieved when he denies it. As Kay leaves, Capos enter the office and pay reverence to Michael as Don Corleone before closing the door. The Godfather was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Written by Mario Puzzo and Francis Ford Coppola, based on the novel by Mario Puzzo. Produced by Albert S. Ruddy. 
Music by Nino Rota. Cinematography by Gordon Willis. Editing by William Reynolds and Peter Zinner. Production design by Dean Chavalaris. Costume design by Anna Hill Johnstone. The Godfather stars Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone. Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. James Caan as Sonny Corleone. Richard Castellano as Clemenza. Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen. Sterling Hayden as Captain McCluskey. John Marley as Jack Waltz. Richard Conti as Barzini. Al Latiri as Salozzo. Diane Keaton as Kay Adams. Abe Vigoda as Sal Tessio. John Cazali as Fredo Corleone. Al Martino as Johnny Fontaine. Alex Rocco as Mo Green. And Talia Shire as Connie Corleone Rizzi. So, Ben. Yes, there's so many ways to attack this. You know, The Godfather is one of the most well-regarded film of all time. It's the most talked about film of all time. I think we both agree that we haven't really felt this way about a movie since really Gone with the Wind, which is known as this epic masterpiece that is just so regarded and loved. And there's so much history and research poured into it. And people regard this movie, The Godfather, as a masterpiece, which I think we both hands down will agree. We'll say that right up at the front. I think it would be insane to say this movie isn't a masterpiece. But a lot of people say this is a perfect movie. I think there's a huge argument whether, like, what is a perfect movie? What does that even mean? I think the craziest thing, though, is a lot of people say that this is the best movie ever made. And that, to me, has always been... You know, whenever someone says this is, like, the best thing ever... I always have like the biggest seed of doubt. You know, it happens a lot with art. People like see something, they like look at something and they embrace it immediately and say like, I've never experienced anything like this before. It's the best. And I think there is a huge argument to make about The Godfather that is the best gangster movie of all time. It's the best mafia movie of all time. But I really wanted to talk about this notion of people saying this is the best movie of all time. So I thought it would be interesting because, you know, people have talked about this movie. People have explored every single detail, every little minor facet of Coppola, of Brando, of Pacino, all these actors and directors and Puzo and everything has been explored heavily. But no one ever really wants to talk about the faults of this movie. And I think there there are issues in the movie and I think there is ways that this movie could have been slightly more interesting for me personally. So I wanted to ask right off the top, because we're going to gush and love so much of this movie. I wanted to ask you, Ben, what is the biggest issue with The Godfather? Yeah, uh, before I get into my biggest issues, and I have just a few, but I want to agree with you that, yeah, this movie is as celebrated and talked about and documented as Gone with the Wind. I think one of the, the, the key differences, and I was thinking about this earlier today, is that Gone with the Wind is just... Like it's like textbook almost like we all agree for the most part like there's very little like gray area that we don't really agree on in terms of Gone with the Wind and like what happened it's like very little details whereas with The Godfather there is probably people still living in my area who might have been involved with uh, the mafia who might have been involved with The Godfather to some extent 
and they could tell you 50 different ways that they were involved with it and they were the reasons why marlon brando did this or al pacino did that because everyone likes to make claims about this movie so it's like well what's the truth and when we talk about documentation and research in this movie and we didn't use this per you know we didn't but we loved the show the offer uh that which came out on paramount plus there was a streaming show and it's about the production of the godfather it came out by paramount it's like are they have to tell the truth somewhat right so it's just very interesting like even paramount the company behind the making of the movie would even portray themselves and maybe not the best light or maybe not the most truthful light we don't know because there's a lot of gray areas with the godfather so there's so much being talked about with it and it's hard to tackle i I think it's a harder thing to tackle than gone with the wind when you factor in all the external um nuances and different opinions and the way that it's that so many people who were involved with the movie are still around and still making movies nobody who made gone with the wind is still around making movies so with that said my issues with the godfather number one on my list that i want to take out right now is diane keaton k adams i don't like wow i am not a fan of diane keaton and pretty much anything (laughs) so i i I really i'm really just not a fan anything i'm not a fan (laughs) I, I don't That's know insane. what I I know I have some strong opinions about a few people. It's not many. Diane Keaton, I just don't like her. I think she's is so, and I I get the perspective. Oh well, she's the outsider of uh of the Corleone family. She's us in that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like bore me to death. Like she holds no relevance to me in this movie. And I think it it like almost hurts the development of Michael and how he's portrayed. So I just don't think she's like a great actress. I don't think she really adds much to the movie. I, she would have been the first thing I cut if I was a studio executive and was trying to push my weight. I would have been just cut her from the movie. Not even worth it. So before I give my take, which is so funny because it is actually the opposite of your take, which I, I love because we didn't discuss this at all. Then, if you remove Kay Adams from this movie, there's a fundamental element that she kind of supports, right? She is the audience, basically. She's the outsider. She receives the exposition from Michael in the very beginning, defining who the family is, what they do, how he wants to be separated from the family, right? So, I guess in that nature, you could just have him, you know, maybe talking to Fredo in this case, or maybe talking to Sonny. You could have him talk about that to his brother, right? But then, where do we get the iconic ending to this film where do we get that you know lying to his wife closing the door on her becoming the don like how would you do that then without Kay adams i think he could have just lied to his sister and that would and that was sufficient enough was him just lying to connie like and because it's it, it it's already served that purpose we already know he's lying we know and I, and i find that to be the case so much with talking about so many movies and perspective and, and how do we show this it's just like i'm the audience i understand i can know po i know pov i understand how the story is being structured i understand whose narrative it is enough to be able to make some discernible differences and and honestly i just thinking about like oh well, how would you do it without the explanation during the wedding scene just show it this show like some of the family interactions which is what they do and I think that kind of leads to like the one of the other aspects of what I don't love about the movie is sometimes 
and I'm not discrediting Coppola, but I feel like sometimes there's just some, and I, not there's just some like entry level filmmaking things and mistakes that they make that are kind of fun for the movie. I think it's kind of simple when Michael is just telling Kay like this is how it all works. Like he's being very open about it to a point where it's just like the world that we know about mafia movies and it's almost very supposed to be secret but he's telling her almost everything but without saying it but just to give us that you know all that kind of explanation so it's a little simplified a little clunky but i'm not going to mark it all total for you know for that part of the story but i'm talking about some of the other aspects like there's some match cuts with the editing that of people like not doing the same thing when they go to the next shot um there's one moment in the hospital when Michael and the nurse are pushing Vito, and, you know, through a doorway, and they catch uh, the hand of Marlon Brando, and he moves his hand, and like hand just jumps right up, and I kind of thought like I was talking to people earlier too because I brought that up, and I'm like, oh, that's fine, like kind of like makes it like work with the movie, like it's okay. I'm like, yeah, it's okay, but also, if I was the director and it's just like a simple insert shot of, of pushing Marlon Brando through a door, it's just like, hey, can we just reset and just do that one more time? It's a 10 second shot. We can just nail, just watch his hand. So I don't know if that's just like a, an oversight, but I think just some of that is, is interesting when we do talk about like, is this the greatest movie of all time? Is this the, the, the top movie ever? Is it the most perfect movie? But get there just like little simple things that are just missed in the edit. Sure. Yeah. That's a really interesting to look at because, you know, when people say it's the greatest movie of all time, I think the word perfect kind of fits right next to that. You would assume someone saying it's the greatest movie of all time, it's perfect. And truthfully, I don't think there's any perfect film, you know, especially when you want to break something down into such a like microscopic way. And and I'm using the word nitpicking because it is what it is. I mean, it is nitpicking. Not many people will notice those things except for you know, us who've seen the movie like three times in the past like yeah. week, right? So when you're like Four. <laughs> really analyzing and looking really closely into movies, you will notice things like that in every movie, whether it's a small hand moving on someone who's, you know, passed out or dead or, uh, you know, a blink for someone who should be dead or maybe even an extra is looking into the camera in the background. But you don't really notice that when you first watch the movie. I think in a way, those issues, those faults, the way they kind of blend and kind of just disappear in the river of this movie shows just also how great and compelling the film is in terms of its characters, in terms of you really feel like you're in a lived in world, which I definitely want to get back to when we talk about the movie. But I want to talk about mine and my biggest issue with the movie. And it is almost the opposite. And in a way it is the same because it is K and it it is K in a way that I think we could have expanded on her role in this film And, you know, a lot of people might hear that and be like, oh, this feminist bullshit. You watch Barbie (laughs) movie and you're coming out talking about how there needs to be more women. No, it's not about that. It's the character in service of the other character or our main character, Michael. I think Kay could have been used better to amplify Michael's story and make him more connected to her in a way. You know, I think with Kay... She gets really lost in this movie for a long time because it's very much about the family and she's the outsider. And then when they come back together, their life is like barely shown at all. It's like, boom, they're together. Nothing. Kid. Boom. Godfather. Like it's really quick and it just all happens. And for me, really where the issue comes down to, which is going to just piss people off, is Sicily. I truly think the whole Sicily portion of this movie is not necessary. And I think when you look at the overall 
like structure and arc of Michael, we're looking at his love for I'm blanking on the woman's name in Sicily, but his love for his Italian wife, you know, how much he like cares about her, which is again plays into like the Hollywood cliches of the meet cute meet five minutes later. I'm asking her dad to marry me. I hate that kind of shit in movies. So even with such beautiful cinematography showing off Sicily and embracing all of that, it is beautiful. Like all the filmmaking is there and it's really compelling, but I want to pitch it as a different kind of angle. And this would also help with my K issue. And I think it would have been more interesting if he was just like bored, just wishing he could go back, wishing he could be with his family, wishing he could be by his father's side as he's recovering and, you know, hopefully be there for his family. And what happens, Kay goes out and finds him, like somehow has some sort of agency and finds him in Sicily and basically convinces him to like be together with her. And she has that level of agency where she's a stronger character. And then you can see more of their bond. You could see how more of things work. And you don't kill Kay like you do with the Italian wife, but you see her as a stronger character and a stronger person who can then bring Michael back. And she thinks Michael is coming back because she want, he wants to be with her. You know, he wants to have a family and be a great, honest man like he's telling her in the beginning. But no, boom, like that gut punch at the end, even more so revealing that, you know, he's taken on this Don persona, I think is even more heartbreaking in that way because we know about her. We know about her struggle or her passion, you know, but it's always so easy to just like sit back and play quarterback after you watch a movie. You know, it's not as easy to just see this from a book, the pages or the screenplay pages. So. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we're talking about the one of the best movies of all time. I, I don't think that's crazy to say that. But, yeah, what do you think of those changes? It's super different than what the movie shows off. What do you think? Yeah, we are definitely in opposite days because I, I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> um, it, and I it has and it, it's the same result, but a different approach. And this is the and I and again, it's so funny to bring up Barbie because the whole joke of like, well, I'm just going to mansplain the entire plot to you while like not letting you watch is like not what we're doing. Like we're saying, watch the movie first, like definitely watch the movie. Then just listen to like what, <laughs> what we, what we think about it. Cause there's a ton of awful criticism and we, and we, you brought up nitpicking and when I was talking about editing, it, it is very nitpicky, which people try to do with this movie. It's just not fair, but the use of time is still is very clunky with this. And Sicily as clunky as it is in terms of like, a timeline of like how long is he there why does he have a black eye for a whole year potentially like how like how severe <laughs> is that punch it's just a punch um but regardless he needs to go to sicily because all right we're getting into michael now uh because it's just this is what the movie's about it's about michael so at this point in the movie um he's already decided he already made the kill he decided that you know that he's gonna leave and he doesn't know when he's going to come back. He has no idea when he's going to go back home. That's the deal he made. He did this to revenge, you know, avenge his father. You know, his father is living, but he's doing this to, because there's attempted murder um, and to settle the family business. And at, still at that point, he, I don't, he does not want to be done yet, but there's that change as coming. There's that subtleties that we're seeing. So then he goes to home and he finds his roots Um and it mirrors some, you know, I'm not even going to say it because you have not watched part two or part three. So I'm just not even going to say it. It, it. It's so important to him learning about his family history, learning how to be an Italian because he's not Italian at the beginning of the movie. He's 
this American Marine. His father wanted him to be a governor, to be a lawyer, a doctor, a senator. Like, he wanted to be all these things besides being just known as an Italian, part of this thing, part of this business that they have. And he goes to Italy. He he falls in love with this Italian woman. He He's enjoying this Italian life. And boom, it's taken away from him. It's taken away. And, and he thought he was going to have this peaceful life. And now he's being dragged back in uh, to back home. His brother dies and he now has to take over. And so and again, that still ends in the result of he gets K back. There's a lot of weird time skips and time jumps with that. He's like, I'm, I've been home for a year. Oh, why haven't you seen her for over a year? What have you been doing for a year? <laughs> have you just been waiting? Um, regardless, um, it you know it it's sort of it still ends up in that that spot of like, well, what? Why are you like this? K asking him like, are you telling me the truth? But we're seeing from his side and his perspective that is, I've been driven to this point. I didn't choose this. I've been driven to this point. And that's sort of like the conversation that he has with his dad in the garden. So we're, I'm jumping all over the place. But Sicily, yeah. is, no, no, is I I think it's important to that development of Michael, which is what the movie it is. is about. It is, it is. I totally agree with that. I just can't get down with the romance. It's just bullshit to me. It it is classic Hollywood bullshit. It is classic meet cute, fall in love instantly, and I hate it. I really think it's the worst part of this movie in terms of storytelling. And I think you can keep all of it. You can keep the Sicily. You just remove that love story aspect. You can still find his Italian roots, you know, have a nice peaceful life. But who interrupts it? It's Kay. And I know you said no to more Kay, but let's just imagine this as an entirely different thing. Diane Keaton's not involved. Let's imagine, you know, pick some actress of the time that would be better for you. I still think she, as a character, if she's left in this movie, needs more, needs something else to kind of strengthen their relationship and make it more impactful. But, yeah, you know, I just still don't amazing. Think, like, I still understand I, the Sicily moments, you know? Yeah, and but I think like, that's what makes this, the idea of the bonds that they have in the Corleone family strong is that not, like not even my wife is going to be a stronger bond than my family than than being in this mob you know like sure which you still have I, that though like you could have that without the wife the marrying and right you know. but i feel like if she goes to sicily it and again like hagen even brings that up of just like well we're supposed to like legally i can't know this like how am i supposed to know where he is like and you're just gonna go find yeah. him like that also mm -hmm. like you're like yeah it's a cliche that he falls in love with a woman but it's also like almost a pitfall in the storytelling that she can just show up there and find him but the rest of the mafia couldn't find him yeah no you're yeah. i understand but that. i'm using you know, logic but pitching I'm, is like yeah, such I, yeah yeah no we're, we're, we're it's com more complicated you know what I'm yeah, pitching is like so detailed that I'm exploring her more as a character. So maybe in this version of the movie, she is actively searching and she like figures out some loophole and she really figures out where she is, giving her agency as a character. So, yeah, it's like so many what ifs that it's like, what's the point, you know? But it is part of my issue with the movie is that his his huge transformation is the death of this woman that he falls in love with. If I don't buy their love and their relationship that much, then like I'm not really buying the, the death and the impact of the death as much, you know, to me, it was always just a shocking moment when I saw this movie, it wasn't like, a, Oh no, he lost his love. Cause I just didn't fully believe in that love in the first place. Well, okay. Now let me reverse this and ask, what if it was Vito 
in Italy and it was his wife being blown up in the car, then would you believe it? Did you say Vito's wife? Yeah. Like, what if it was... Yeah. What, what if it was that? Because like, we get nothing between... Mama the, Corleone? Yeah, we get nothing between Vito and Mama Corleone, who literally is just Mama Corleone. She does not have a name. Well, I, that's so funny because I would have the same exact issue, right? Because we don't know Mama Corleone that well. But, so but they at developed that point, that. why would I care? But, but you can... That's the thing is the wedding and, and the whole intro and how, like, the mother is treated. Like, it just feels like... Of course they're in love. Like it doesn't. It, it feels so natural. It like there is. It gives so much emotion just by how they interact with each other without saying anything that it just works. That you just know that it works. Sure. Sure. So. I mean, it would be sad because they're married and they've been together for a longer time. So, I, in a way, I would definitely feel more attached because it's a woman he's been married to probably thirty years, if not longer, compared to this fucking beautiful Italian woman that he met three months ago. You know what I mean? But we like, don't know if it's been three months. Come on. But we don't know if it's in three months. Well, then there there is an, also another issue with the Sicily scenes. You know, like time gets mushed and well, confused. Time, I understand right. that. This entire movie is supposed to be 10 years. <laughs> and But it's not believable that it's 10 years. This feels like two years. Not even two. It, it's very odd. And like, that's what I don't love about the movie. Like when I first watched the movie... I didn't understand like how much time was like passing. I thought everything was so rushed and it's kind of, and I was, I was trying to think about the first time I watched it. This it, probably over 10 years ago. I watched it. I was probably still in high school. And even still at that time, I was still quite like, I had that question of like, is this movie really the best movie of all time? Um, which we can get into at the end. So yeah, there's a lot, I think we can nitpick here. And that's like one of my least favorite things when talking about this movie. Cause so, there, there's one podcast I listened to in particular while getting ready for this just to get hear what they had to say and they were nitpicking it so hard but then they were ending their conversation with oh but it's still a top 10 movie all time I just wouldn't call it Citizen Kane Wizard of Oz you know uh, I think it was the <laughs> third movie like, and I'm just like that's not like totally like unfair to like that's the stupidest criticism then you're saying that you're going to blame it for all these things but then say like oh but it's still top 10 Whereas, like, yeah, we said, like, all these things, but, like, they're so, like, minute to the story and, and the film itself. Like, the film is just great as it is. And that's also puzzling of how the Oscars fell out. So why don't we jump into the movie and try and, you know, do some kind of, yeah, well, you have one more, John, and your hand's raised. <laughs> well, first, you mentioned pitfalls, so I do want to kind of tie this all into Coppola and, and pitfalls in general and his pitfalls, but... In terms of like ending the pin on the time traveling and the understanding like how time is kind of, you know, moving throughout this movie, I'm sure there was a reason. I couldn't really find any sort of reasoning, but do you think title cards or even just, you know, text inlaid on the film saying the time, showing the time passing, does that help in a way of like the viewer understanding how much time has passed and how to feel about the characters or is that intentionally left out? That's hard to say. It's definitely intentionally let out in this movie. In the I I don't listen to the spoil the second movie. They have some time cards, but sometimes they don't, and sometimes when they don't, you wish you did. Interesting. Yeah, that that's super interesting because, like you Ben said, I haven't seen the second or third movie, which makes this conversation interesting. It, it's really and kind of 
bizarre. It's really hard because there's, and I think that's one of the other things when people talk about this movie, especially now, they're also talking about it with the context of the second and the third and with a movie like Goodfellas and with the Sopranos, there's so much other context. Yeah. And it's, so it's really hard. Like I'm, I've been really trying hard as we've been preparing for this the last few weeks. And even just today to be in this mindset of like, just the Godfather, just the Godfather, only focus on that, <laughs> only focus on that movie because like that, like that's what, that's what we're talking about. And, and that's what wins best picture is the movie itself, not the discussion around it. Which yeah makes it interesting when we do talk about why movies are worthy or not. So um, that's I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly why I haven't watched the second and third one. It's not like I hate the Godfather. I fucking love this movie. It's awesome. I can't wait to watch the second and third one. But I got to a point where I actually watched this for the first time when I was actually pretty older than most people I would imagine I think I've seen a bunch of clips when I was younger but it wasn't until I was like 20 I think when I actually watched this movie for the first time and I loved it it was amazing I'm like I totally understand why people love this movie so much and then I was really waiting for a 4k restoration to kind of go into the second and third movie because I really wanted to wait I've heard a lot about you know the restoration and how this film has changed over time in terms of the way it looked so I really thought it would be interesting to look at this movie with like almost no context of the second and third film and I think that makes it a such it just makes it so we can dissect the film in a way that's a lot of people won't because most people have seen the second and third movie so you mentioned early pitfalls and Coppola is a really interesting director because he's kind of obsessive about the process of making a movie, almost sometimes more obsessed about the process of making it than the actual film itself. Yeah. So I want to talk about the Godfather Notebook. Ben, have you heard about the Godfather Notebook before? Yeah, it's what it's. He took every page from the book, right, of the Godfather, and then would annotate it by page and use and he used that while directing the movie more than the actual script to. Uh, Yes. Help it, right? So That's what, he, yeah. This, yes, exactly. This Coppola is a, is a madman, and I think this will kind of perfectly show why he's a madman, why this film feels so authentic and real, and why it's it's authentic to the book itself as well, while still being what a lot of people say is much better than the actual book. So it's really interesting. I've got this book from the library as well as The Contender, which is a book about Marlon Brando, so I can get some more information on the legend himself but I was so fascinated by this book because the book is so detailed and it's really exactly what Ben described it is printouts of every single page from the book and he has way more than that obviously it has beautiful images and it has a whole big intro from Coppola which I learned a lot about the whole process and it's you know it's a fairly recent book so it's him looking back at uh, the whole process and how much he kind of like Ben said, cut out every single page with a razor blade and how it took so long. And a lot of it for him was procrastination. A lot of it, which is I'm sure you'll feel good about yourself hearing this, was him just like dreading making this movie. He didn't he wasn't that big of a fan of Mario Puzo's The Godfather. He thought it was, you know, kind of cliche and just kind of trite. And it was almost a way for him to like motivate himself and like get through this process of breaking this book down and analyzing it. And then he kind of fell in love with the, the overall arching story. And George but Lucas told br- him that he had to make the movie so they could make yes. money. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they wouldn't go bankrupt Which and they both like so wild. fail out. <laughs> so, it is yeah. so wild. I mean, maybe Star Wars doesn't exist 
if no. it weren't for the Godfather, right? I, I actually watched something this week. It was a discussion between uh, Christopher Nolan and George Lucas for the DGA, and he said that. He said that they they needed to make the Godfather. They had to get that money to keep it going, and then he was able to keep that going, which helped to fund you know, um, Star Wars, ILM, that, that whole production. Yeah, which is fascinating. And you could look at this film as being so integral to not only 70s filmmaking, you know, verisimilitude and being authentic when you're filmmaking or making a film. But I wanted to bring out The Notebook because there's some interesting aspects to it that I just wanted to kind of highlight and read. And what I found super interesting from a creative process, Ben and I have both made short films before. We, we've we gone through the process, you know, of having a script, trying to break it down, try to understand everything about it to make a movie. This was such an interesting way to kind of look at it because he broke things down in a very interesting way, right? So he obviously breaks down the script, he breaks down pages, but what I really found interesting is that he broke down pitfalls for the movie. And you mentioned that earlier and it's like, oh, so funny that you mentioned that because he himself wanted to make lists of pitfalls before he made the movie. So for each kind of like section or scene of the film, he listed a bunch of pitfalls that he just didn't want to fall into while making the movie. And first off the bat, before I read them, I mean, what a genius way of looking at a production. I feel like so often we don't think about the mistakes you can make that will then help you prevent them. You know, there's just, I wish I learned that in film school. Like it sounds so stupid. It's so basic, but it's like a, brilliant idea before making something so I wanted to read from the very beginning of this book before really just kind of describing the wedding and kind of getting into it but specifically the pitfalls that he started out with in the wedding because that was kind of like the initial kind of scene that he was working on so here are the pitfalls for the wedding scene so there's some text written out and then he even has like handwritten text that you can see that he added on on top of it so the text that he added on top of it simply just say boring doesn't want the scene to be boring, doesn't want a boring opening, and he also added too much exposition, which I think they do a pretty good job of mixing Michael's exposition with the Don and vice versa. But now I'll go into the actual text that he had written out. So the pitfalls that he have listed are cliches, Italians who uh, talk like a dis, failure to make a convincing setting. People must feel that they are seeing a real thing with hundreds and hundreds of interesting specifics like the children sliding around, the sandwich man throwing the sandwiches, hey Bino, two capagol and uh, one prosciutto, etc. Failing to intoxicate with the formability of the Don and his power, losing a basic humanity to all these people, failing to set up a tension between the Godfather and Michael and and the nature of their relationship. So I wanted to read this because not only is it fascinating to really look behind the scenes, to look at Coppola before he had cameras rolling, before he even had any actors probably in this movie, he was so concerned about making this authentic, making this real, making this feel like a real Italian family. And Ben, I want to just have your feelings on that. Do you feel like this is like so lived in and real and the verisimilitude of the film kind of oozes out? Because I certainly do. Yeah, I think that like every pitfall that was listed is exactly what makes the wedding scene great. Is that it does have and and I know I I used and called it simple, but that was the approach to tackle it in terms of the exposition that Michael is giving, but balancing that with the deep detail that you get in the scene with the Don and, and all the nuances and and all these small interactions. They understand, but you need a little bit of that that explanation from Michael which is what he tackles it 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 feels totally lived in and authentic 
and he fought for that. He fought, you know, they, the studio tried to make this a modern movie to try to use Kansas City as the place to film it because it was cheaper. And he said, no, I have to film this in New York. And they fought for it. They fought like there's so many stories. And, and again, what's the truth? What's not the truth? The truth that everyone knows the one through line is that this movie had so many difficulties before they even started rolling. Um, and one of those was Coppola trying to get everyone to say, no, we have to do this the right way. It's not going to be done how they used to make mob movies where not Italians were doing it, where it was these over-exaggerations where it didn't properly represent a culture that, that at that time felt uh, misrepresented. And it's interesting with what Brando does at the Oscars. Um, but Coppola tackles it spot on. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we're not going to break down the movie scene by scene because I think this is like one of the most well-renowned films, one of like the most watched movies of all time. I think we did it for Gone with the Wind because it was it was essential, I think, for that movie. It was we like the crazy. first of its kind. It's We were just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it is crazy just how much we broke that movie down. But I also thought it was important as we move on through time and people forget about these older films. You know, it's 100 years beyond almost, you know? Yeah, and I think what what was important for us was it would, and it still is a time where there's so much ra- you know, racial tension within films and, and representation. And we were trying to say... And what many have talked about instead of the simplicity view that Gone with the Wind is racist, it's that, yes, it has racism in it and it can feel racist, but at the same time, it's a very historical and important movie to film and learning about that is more crucial than disregarding what it is because it's still a fantastic film. And it's the same thing with The Godfather yeah. where they say some pretty off-color things uh, about, you know, they talk about black people, they use, they talk about... And again, when I brought up this through line of this movie to like American gangsters that they talk about how black people, they don't care if they're selling the drugs to them. They use a ton of racial slurs and everyone, everybody's flying them around in this movie. But this movie still remained popular in the zeitgeist of, of pop culture and cinema. And it's fascinating how it has done that versus a movie like Gone with the Wind. And yeah, we could be bring down every single scene of this movie. Um, I think what's fascinating, though, if we're going to talk about just scene structure is how episodic this movie is as well. There's so many different storylines and moments that you're to, that you're supposed to believe takes place over 10 years. But I think that makes it even harder to believe the timeline at times because it's so episodic and isolated. But it feels but it's also so connected in the smallest of ways. Yeah, and it works so well in kind of being episodic. You know, even the difference between the dawn and like the dark seedy office and then, you know, going out to the bright wedding and you're seeing this authentic wedding, which, you know, I loved so much because it just felt so real and lived in. And I love that Coppola didn't have a script and he just kind of sent cameraman around. I loved it so much that I even like ripped that kind of style of filmmaking for my thesis film. You know, it was a scene in a restaurant. I just like had a bunch of people eating in the restaurant like they were actually having a meal. And then just like shoot everything. I just wanted an opening of a restaurant that felt lived in and, you know, like a real setting. And honestly, that was one of the best parts of my whole film. It wasn't scripted. It had no planning. And look look how it turned out. It, it felt real. It felt lived in. So I, it works so well here. And I feel like he's continuing the trend that we see 
from the French Connection and some of these like French New Wave films, all these other films that we've kind of like talked about in the French Connection, kind of bringing that level of realism. He's continually exploring that and he is exploring that in a genre film now, the same way that the French Connection was that uh, cop thriller investigation, cop buddy cop kind of movie. He's kind of exploring the light and the dark of a mafia family. And I absolutely love that. I mean, we have to talk about obviously the Don's introduction, Marlon Brando being this amazing character who's just doesn't, I remember seeing the Don for the first time, like seeing this opening film or the opening scene as a kid and just being fascinated by this guy, the way he looked, the way he moved, the way he was so slow and every word that he said felt so intentional and, and eerie. And then he would explode and smack Johnny Fontaine in the face. Like I was, it's always so compelling of a first scene to kind of introduce us, even though it's a really long take and it's takes its time. It builds that builds that tension and it builds that mystique of like, who is the Don? Like, is he a nice guy? Is he going to murder you in his office? Uh, what is he going to do? And I always love that. So I think we got to talk a little Brando. Oh, it, I, we have to talk Brando. It's, <laughs> I, it's, it's, I think it's one of the most interesting, uh, debates about the movie is who's the lead is it michael is it you know Vito? and let's start with Vito. and wow brando really is just one of the best actors and i there's some criticism where people try and like put it down and try to say you know oh well he's just reading off cue cards i i don't know what you think about it i really have no problem with it because if he's able to look at just the cue cards to help him with lines and coppola has no issues with it and it works out to the way it works out, then let him do it. Yeah, that's my opinion. If you can watch this movie and you have no knowledge of cue cards or him doing that, you're just not going to know that. Yeah. It, it, like knowing the knowledge, maybe you're looking for his eyes to move slightly around and pe- or look at something. People look for that. People look for that. that yeah. Like, oh, well, but you, you know that information looking. already. Right. But if you didn't know, you wouldn't even think about it. And when I watch the movie, I don't think about these when you have a cue card. I just am watching. No. I'm like so engrossed. And then when I pull myself out, for some stupid reason, I'm like, oh yeah, it's a cue card. And it, it like this doesn't really matter at all. Um, it it's such a commanding performance, and you know, people talk about like, oh, where do you get the inspiration from? And and I think I brought it up during our discussion on, on the waterfront, where I talked about you know the the head of that that fa- that mafia group, that gang that Brando's character was a part of, and I felt like that was how he drew some inspiration of that. I compare that character to a bulldog and, and people compare Brando and, and Vito Corleone as a bulldog. I, I love that emphasis on, on, on like dogs and animals. Cause then you look at the, the sons that he has and it's the runt of the litter that rises to the top. The one that has to fight the most, the one that you don't expect. So yeah, I, I just, I love his performance and, and if we're just going to talk about randomly different scenes, I, I think to me, my favorite scene of, on these rewatches of the movie and as we've been looking at it is Vito's reaction um, to finding out that Sonny's dead. So the scene, how it happens and how it's structured is, you know, we haven't seen Vito in a while. He hasn't really talked. He's just been laying in, in the bed recovering from these gunshot wounds, which again, it looks like he's still, it's been a few weeks since he's been shot, but it's been years supposedly regardless. Um, Tom is like sitting in the office. He's sad and in walks Vito. It's like this big re-entrance into the movie. And they're talking about what's going on. You know, what, why am I hearing my wife crying? 
why can't why are you not coming to me and the line that really gets me is he talks about but you needed a drink first and now you've had your drink so tell me what happened and it's so powerful and this moment between Duvall and Brando and Duvall I think is completely underrated in this movie when we talk about performances um and it it's so masterful and what happens the the don cries over his son he's consoling and and we're looking at the nuances the stepson the son that he couldn't legitimize you know because he's not italian he's irish german he they picked him up randomly but he's trusted enough and he's being so vulnerable and not with a family member per se but somebody that he's accepted into his family so it's not a blood connection but a bond that they are able to form and it's so powerful. He he like steadies himself and he's like, okay, this war stops now, um, and action comes and he brings the five families together. And I just think to me that that was like the most captivating performance and and the highlight to me of this time watching around. Of course, there's so many other moments with Vito, but to me that was my scene of the movie. So I talked a little a lot about Vito the last few minutes. So John, I'll let you take the floor right now to praise that uh, brand. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Robert Duvall, and I'm glad you brought up the cue cards as well, because uh, on a recent interview, I think it was celebrating the 50th 50th anniversary, Robert Duvall just flat out said, like, it it was pure lazy why he just used cue cards. And, you know, that's a fair criticism. I think there's a lot of history of Brando calling him kind of a, a lazy performer, not wanting to try, especially after his kind of, like, failures in terms of films in the 60s. You know, Mutiny on a Bounty was, like, a, a film that he poured his heart into and it just bombed and he was made fun of that movie pretty pretty heavily and I think that really got to him he was like someone who was very inside of his head he probably had some mental health issues that seems like very apparent by his life and later on in his health and I read uh, The Contender The Contender could have been somebody, could have been somebody. Uh, I didn't read the whole thing it's like 700 pages but I read uh, a decent amount like 60 pages which is kind of taking place of pre-Godfather and getting the role and then you know kind of finishing the role in the premiere and uh, Last Tango in Paris kind of taking it off from there because he made that while they were about to premiere the film but I wanted to read a little section of this book because I thought it was really interesting about Brando and his like obsession of performance and how he fell in love with Vito and how he just became obsessed with his character and that's really what he loved in life. He pursued these characters. He just wanted to live in the lives of these characters. And it's really interesting because you know you look at the way he looks at the cue cards, which I, if I'm being honest, I think is, is a bullshit excuse. And he says, you know, when you look at the cue cards, you're getting the words fresh and it feels like you're reading it fresh and it comes off more natural that way. That's kind of like what he said throughout the years and throughout history. And, you know, it's interesting in a way, like on a first take, if you don't know the text, if you know the basics of the scene, but you don't know the exact dialogue, I think there is some truth to that. But, you know, movie making is consistent of many, many takes. So if you're trying to use that logic, like he's reading the scene over and over, he's reading the dialogue over and over. But what it comes down to is the film itself. Exactly what you said, Ben. It doesn't matter. What we're seeing is the final product. You don't know any of this. I don't know any of this, the contender information. You know, when I watch this movie, I just have this added information now that I've done research and I know more about it. So I just found that really interesting because it's just the way he looked at it. Then you have like his co-star in the movie who Robert Duvall is incredible in this movie. I think you're exactly right. He's one of the like most underappreciated aspects of this movie. And I think it's because the consigliere is such an interesting character, especially when it's not 
you know, a family member. It's some outsider. I'm Irish Catholic, like he says, you know. But I wanted to read this little uh, chapter from this book or this little kind of paragraph or two from the book because it really sets the tone of not only the way Coppola was a director, why I think we got such a real performance from every single person from the cast, but it also goes into kind of Brando's head a little bit here too. So to set this up, basically Coppola is kind of like bringing all the the kind of members of the cast together. He's bringing the crew together all to kind of have like a, a general script reading. The younger members of the cast clustered around a table, some of them making notes on their scripts. Marlin sat off to the side in an easy chair, his eyes mostly on Coppola. During streetcar rehearsals, he had been the one to pace. Now, 24 years later, he sat Buddha-like, a press agent thought, watching, listening, and possibly judging them all. Coppola stopped pacing and told the cast he had an idea. He wanted them to play some scenes he had in mind, scenes just for the rehearsals, not in the shooting script, he said. Scenes that would give them memories to carry with them, their performances. No doubt from his no doubt from his comfortable repose, the Buddha stirred a little at this. One thing I often do, Coppola explained, is have a scene where two characters meet for the first time, even though in the story they've already known each other for a while. I find that giving the cast sensual memories always helps them. As artists, as artists, as they're playing a scene, just the fact that they share a memory, it becomes like an emotional deposit in their bank account that enables them to better know each other. And I really latched on to that, not only because you can see Brando, you can see the kind of level he's at, you can see his connection to a streetcar named Desire and how he kind of like loved that character and how it changed his career and how he kind of feels the same way about the Don here. But it also shows Coppola and his like obsession with realism and getting the best performances. And I love that terminology of an emotional deposit. And I think you really feel that in, in the performance. You feel that with the Don and the history that he has. And even you explained it with Mama Corleone. Like you still feel that love even though we've, we barely hear a single line from her throughout the whole movie. But you see that connection. You can kind of feel that in the air. You can feel the chemistry between all of these characters in the family. So what do you think about that little bit? And uh, what do you think about like Brando in general? Maybe like even outside The Godfather. Like what are your overall thoughts of the man himself uh overall thoughts of brando is just he's a, a mount rushmore level of actor for me. <laughs> um i think i i talked so much and gloated so much about him on the waterfront and just continue to, to defend that performance as one of the best and you know which one you know he won an oscar for this as well you know as we all know which one is better i still think on the waterfront but man this is still emotionally heavy and and when you talk about coppola's approach and um having them do these scenes where they're just kind of meeting and know each other i'll bring up the offer uh just this one time because it is shown but i think it kind of lines up and whether they did an actual dinner or not it was still in that same vein of that in the show they show that um that he brought all the actors together to have a um a dinner and they acted out as they were and you got that sense in the show like oh they figured it out and there's definitely, you know, that sense. And actually what I think, you know, there's so many great lines in this movie um, that we spent an hour just quoting this movie. But, but my favorite in terms of capturing uh, Don Vito, and this is at the beginning, is when they're going to take the, the, the photo during the wedding and Michael's not there yet. He just looks around. He's like, where's Michael? 
we're not taking this picture without Michael. The command that he has, mm. the the simplest gesture of just we're not just shaking his hand and his head just going, we're not we're not doing this without him. Tells me everything I need to know about how he feels about family. That that yeah, like maybe Michael's not you know not doesn't want to be part of us. He's kind of the black sheep in in different ways. But if we're taking a family photo, we're not doing it unless Michael's in this one. And it's yeah. such, it's such a command and, su- and such a small thing that he does to the performance that that truly is just great. And it's probably improvised. Where's the cue card there? He probably yeah. you know would just thought of that just like we're not doing this without him yeah it it definitely could have been and you can see there's a lot of improvisation throughout this film you know take the gun or leave the gun you know take the cannoli classic improvised line which is you know such an awesome scene beautiful surrounding seeing the statue of liberty in the background super cool i love it but i just i yeah latch on that that emotional deposit and i think you really see that you feel that with with uh with Brando's performance, the Don feels so lived in and he feels real. And I, I like that you mentioned the dinner scene because that is, or the dinner that they had kind of pre-production. That is true. I mean, that's directly referenced in the contender, the book that I was just kind of referencing, okay. which I should say the contender is written by William J. Mann to credit my man. But <laughs> you know, it's interesting because yeah, you like that. You like that. Little, I, I love your puns. tongue in cheek thing right there. <laughs> But I thought it was super interesting. I'll mention the offer this one time too, but there's so much from the contender from like a lot of the research that I did. And that show seems very accurate to what happened. Obviously, you know, you're playing things up, you're heightening things a little bit here and there, but this was like a crazy production and, you know, many interviews from the man Al Ruddy himself. It was crazy. You know, there's onset mafia members. There was mafia members trying to like end the film. You know, the general mafia just wanted to like stop the film before it was even made because they hated the word mafia and they hated the way that they would be represented as lower class and, and kind of like slum and, crim- and criminals. And I think this film is the opposite. It's like it truly is what they kind of say in the offer and how they pitch it to the mafia is it's not. It's a family movie. It's really about the kind of kinship that they have. And I love that you mentioned that line because it's true. Whether that's even one, if that's a written line, it's amazing. It's such a simple, small line. Where's Michael? We can't take the photo without Michael. But it tells you so much. It shows Michael is an outsider. You know, he's the outsider to his family. No one else really even noticed except for the father who clearly cares the most about the family. And it also just shows like the level of passion, like you said, that they have for the family. It's like that important. You know, you're not going to take a photo, especially not without Michael. It doesn't matter if he's kind of separated from us. So it all kind of ties into this level of like comfortable, you know, this this comfortable nature that all these characters feel. They, They feel so lived in. They feel so real. They feel like they could just step out of the screen. And I think that's what sells the movie so well, you know, along with just being credible a to z in terms of like the filmmaking techniques that that uh, coppola uses throughout the movie so yeah i want to jump to maybe I, another scene that we could probably get to but yeah go ahead you have something yeah, else no well i was just gonna say i think it is harder to jump scene to scene but i was thinking we maybe we just jump a character to character because we're talking about Vito, obviously a great performance but i think the character that derives that ties directly to him we can still talk about Vito is now michael and we talked about that sure. that journey that he has. This movie is very much about Michael and his his ascension to becoming the head of the family and becoming the Godfather. I think one of the great things, like when I when you first watch the movie and you don't know what's going to happen, 
to see that process unfold in front of you is that's almost shocking. It, it was like, wait a second, Michael just came out of nowhere that he's going to lead it because, you know, you're watching Vito, you, you don't know what's going to happen, and you assume Sonny's going to do it. Also, I love you're wearing a tank top where Sonny always wears the tank top, and look at you, look at you, swole boy. Regardless, uh, <laughs> um, it's very fascinating, you know, just how Michael comes out of nowhere. And, and I want to use again that analogy of dogs and, and puppies where Vito is this bulldog. He has this, you know, he has his firstborn son and Sonny, like Sonny is who he's been training up to be Fredo, the second son, part of it, but kind of on the outside, but, you know, a working dog that, that he can get. But then Michael's this run to the litter that he just, he's the baby. He just wants him just to go live your life, go do your thing. But then it's Michael that gets like brought back into it. Um, and, and it's these small little details. I think the first detail where you know that like he's cut out for this is when, again, this is the hospital scene. He, um, Enzo, the baker comes in, uh, and he's shaking, you know, they're, he's, they're outside, like watching, he's shaking, trying to light a cigarette and Michael helps him and he looks at the lighter and it's the smallest thing. He just looks and his hand is steady. He just notices my hand's not steady or my hand's not shaking. I'm cool and calm right now. That speaks mm -hmm. like so, and it's all these subtleties. So, you know, I just want to, you know, kind of pose that to you. Just like this first time you're watching, like, like, am I wrong? Like you're not expecting, you know, Michael to be all of a sudden the leader of the film. No, no. I like that. You explain the, the siblings and the brothers as like, puppies and a litter it's yeah. interesting Hagen's it's really the random because no know, one ever dog that gets like thrown in there just the random stray yeah he's the the random stray that just happens to be there but he's somehow the best dog you know yeah <laughs> i love that i've never heard anyone describe this movie like this it's always shakespearean and well oh you know, i can using such flowerly language which it is it yeah. is you know, i haven't gotten to my from the man himself coppola yeah i haven't know? gotten to my shakespearean ways of talking about this movie i think i texted it to you but <laughs> you did yeah you did I love Pacino. I mean, obviously, he's such a phenomenal actor. We've seen him kind of explode and become this almost like caricature of himself, I think you can say. You know, he's he's so much more heightened in a lot of his movies from, you know, the 80s and beyond, I would probably say. But you get such a, like, soft and also just, like, fiery performance in here. When I say fiery, it's not a lot of screaming and yelling like you may be used to Pacino. It's all in his eyes, like, this centered eyes and this, like, focus, this kind of, like, just anger that you can just see, like, festering behind his eyes, even though he's, like, so cool, calm, collected on the outside. And well, it is funny because as, as a kid when I was watching this movie, like, I was like, wow, what the fuck? Like, how did he make this transformation? It feels crazy and... And, and very fast in a way when he comes back from Sicily and everything the ball just kind of rolls really quickly in the film but watching this movie a couple times recently and kind of really paying attention to that first scene of exposition with him and Kay it, he feels very in denial he's saying how like he's not going to be one of them he's, he's, he's like you know he's the military man he's going to do better he's not going to get dragged in it almost like he's like telling himself like no like you know you want this like you know you've like this life is interesting to you yeah. and like you can see yourself going down there but he's like telling trying to like convince himself like don't do this don't do this don't do this like yeah i'm not you like know them. you can't fall down this rabbit hole i'm not like them exactly and that's what's so compelling it's such a complex relationship that he has with himself you know he's fighting yeah. himself throughout the whole movie and what what's interesting about like i'm not like them and 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 this 
it's maybe just part of the performance, but I would say Michael's the most emotionless character in the movie. He hold, and definitely you can say like, well, he you know he has anger, he has passion, but he really holds it in, and that and that's what makes him frightening. That's what made Vito frightening is he's cool, he's calm. Yeah, he slaps uh, Johnny Fontaine, um, but that's kind of it in terms of like being you know like overpowering and demanding it's very subtle he does not bark if we're going to keep using that dog analogy and michael doesn't either he he bites back when he realizes he has to when he got punched in the face and as the movie's playing right next to me he's you know getting ready to kill salazzo mccluskey because he's going for revenge and again the eyes are you're right the eyes are so important to this character it's disturbing it's honestly disturbing his, his stare sometimes yeah, no, it really is scary. He, he does feel scary. Even from the earlier scenes, you could just see that there's like this darkness and this kind of like emptiness behind him. And I think you do see him express himself more and more as the movie goes on in the way where I think he really, I don't know if this is like the exact scene where he really becomes the Don for me, but it, I think it's when he goes to Vegas, that level of you know, straight edge. He's like almost not mimicking the Don. He's learned from his father and he goes to Vegas to kind of take back this casino to take over a new branch for their, for their business. And you can see just how stern he is. Like he's not taking any notes, you know, like he's telling you how it's going to go and this is how it's going to go. And if you don't, you know, you better get in line. Even the way he says to Fredo, like never go against the family, just never, ever, you know, go against the family. It's terrifying. Yeah. It is like he's telling it to his brother, but he doesn't feel like he's talking to his brother. It feels like he's literally ready to murder this person. And maybe he, you know, maybe he would. I got no context of two or three. I don't know. I could like see something like that kind of developing in this character, though, where by the end of the movie, all these deaths killing the you know head of the family that he could really go down a much more dark path than the Don did. Yeah, so there's there's an interesting uh, video that I watch on YouTube, just trying to find you know just different nuances. And one of the things they brought that someone brought up in the theory of like how Michael kind of coordinated everything that happens. Like obviously we see the killings of the five families, but it it's more than just like he kind of sets it up like really well. It doesn't come as a surprise, you know, when uh, Hagen, you know, obviously his father tells him, well. They're going to come for you as soon as I'm dead. You're the first person that tells you, like, we're going to set up a meeting. It's going to be safe. That's the betrayer. And that, you know, Tessier comes up to him at the wedding and he realizes that. But he's been waiting for that moment to happen. He set it up. And, and part of that reasoning is with the Mo Green thing is that he goes in there and he riles him up to kind of create this, like, false narrative that the Corleones are, like, flailing, that they're that they're vulnerable. Yeah. And that uh, people can come and get them, and that's when he strikes. That's when he brings them back. So it's it's cool and calculating. It's terrifying, um, and it, it's such a commanding performance. So he does he learn that from his father? Is there a similar? Is do you think there's a similarity between the two? Um, in this movie, I'll ask that. In this movie, is there a similarity between Michael and his dad? Well, I, I definitely think the similarity is his presence, the, you know, the, the quiet nature. He's only going to say exactly what he needs to say. He's not going to fluff anything up. He's not going to bullshit you. He's a pretty 
honest man, right? The way the Don, Vito Corleone, is a very honest man. He sticks by his word. And I think he definitely learns that from his father. And he has that, like, tenacious kind of spirit, that, like, cutthroat attitude as we see murders most of all of the mafia family at least the, all the heads basically by the end of the film so you see that kind of cutthroat nature which almost goes beyond you know Vito it goes beyond what he would even do he wanted more of keeping the peace like let's just all like settle this down let's like not go crazy here so you can see he's kind of pushing it beyond even Vito, but I think you still get like references of how he's inspired by his father, the the quiet nature, the kind of like slow build uh, that he has. Like when he speaks with people, it becomes more threatening, or yeah. he speaks with such a soft tone that it is threatening in a way, even though it doesn't feel like it at first. But I don't know. I'm trying to think of Vito and like some of his conversations and the way he speaks to people earlier in the film and I can't think of like a direct scene that kind of relates to Vito directly. I so but, I th- I think it's the one thing I can think of is how they talk about business versus personal. Um so we have the earlier scene where Salazzo comes uh to Genko to talk to Corleone to talk to Vito about the narcotics business and setting that up. Um and it, it's kind of it's very cordial very just like friendly but then sunny oversteps and that's where it starts but that's where the business becomes personal because that's when it's kind of revealed that Salazzo could just take out Vito and form a good relationship with Sonny because he wants to be involved in narcotics now after the assassination attempt after they're trying to figure out what to do Sonny is kind of just like oh we're gonna go after them that's the bada bing we're gonna go you know pal like it he it just like doesn't he's just like kind of goofing off. He's like, yeah, we're just going to go out there and just guns a blazing where Michael is, you know, trying to be cool and calm, but he's also like, we can go after the cop and Salazzo. We can kill McCluskey. Um, and Sonny says, you're taking this very personally. And Michael goes, where's it say that you can't kill a cop? I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a dishonest cop and a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming to him. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. That's exactly what his father would say. We're, we will kill this cop. We'll go after them. Not because it's personal. It's business at this point. And that's how that's how um, Vito thought. It's I'm not going to get involved in narcotics. You can do whatever you want. Strictly business. It's not going to work. We have to kill this cop. Strictly business. It's not personal. And like that's kind of the horrifying part is justifying murder by just business. Yeah, it's very scary, very scary. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Sonny because he doesn't listen even to himself. I think that's what gets him killed. You know, he leans too much in the, the personal side of things. He goes after, you know, Carlo, his sister's abuser, and wants to kill him, you know, and he goes back a second time, probably going to kill Carlo. You know, like, I'm pretty sure that's what he was on his way to do, if not, like, severely hurt or injure him. And he gets gunned down because he's obsessed with this kind of like personal vendetta that he has. So yeah, we so, can kind of change gears and talk about James Conn a bit, I think, for sure. Yeah, I was just going to say like just the last thing about like we're talking about revenge and, and going after it. And, and I think this mirror is also sunny and how he thinks is that Michael goes for revenge by killing Salazzo and McCluskey. And that scene in the in the restaurant is... It, it has to be Michael's and Al Pacino's best scene of the film, right? Like just the eyes, the stare, the command, the talking in Italian, the looking for the gun. It's it's just so suspenseful. 
So I, I just didn't want to uh, talk about Michael without mentioning that scene, um, oh, which I think absolutely. which I think I mean, bears directly about James Conn and just like how he would just go guns a blazing, not even try to set this up. Like it, it took Michael to bring this up to make it happen. It was not Sonny's idea at all. Exactly, because if Sonny would do this, he would probably like roll up with a car, m- machine guns out, just like Tommy gunning like the whole restaurant. Like that's probably how Sonny would kind of handle the whole situation. But, you know, I think that's a great scene. I think that scene has been analyzed and just like picked apart so many times. And I don't think we need to go too deep in. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. It's so suspenseful. The buildup of the subway, the shooting, the like the violent nature of the shooting, just like the shot to the throat, the bang in the head, like just visceral, bloody, bright blood. Like it's disgusting, but like I oh, can't look away, man. He's so good and so juicy. I love it. But yeah, you're right. Like Sonny wasn't his plan. He denied that plan. Thought it was a bad idea. But man, that's why James Conn is such a good actor. Though. <laughs> like he is so compelling as this character. He is so much more expressive than Michael. Like you said, Sonny is just a hothead who's just is he's just this explosive energy filled with like machoism, and he he's he truly the Italian feels American. like he, the cliche. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He feels like the biggest cliche, right? Yeah, he, he, he is the Americanized version, which he would not survive in Sicily like Michael does. Like, he wouldn't find a wife. He would just <laughs> oh, find... That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I've never even thought about that. Oh, oh, if he went to Sicily? Yeah, it would be... Yeah, yeah. It, it would be... He'd be loud. He, he'd be boisterous. He he would find his way into... trying to get into the, the mafia of Italy and get into that business where Michael stays away. But that's what brings him back, is him staying away mm-hmm. and he gets gunned down. Yeah, so just to continue talking about Sonny, um, I think there's there's a few things we can talk about. I think maybe we should talk about just his humongous cock and how that's referenced constantly in the movie. Or at least in the book, <laughs> it's a huge thing. They, It's referenced. It's talked about in the movie. His wife does the whole, oh, uh, and I'm using my hands. Oh, it's a little bit bigger. Oh, no, well, it's it's really this big. <laughs> That's so funny that you brought that up. I'm so glad you brought up James Conn's <laughs> cock because no, it, it's not James Conn's cock. It's Sonny <laughs> Sonny's cock. Sonny's cock. Sonny's big cock. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I was I probably like 13 or 14, you know, I was like really getting into movies. I like loved Iron Man. I'm like I'm a cinephile. <laughs> like I love movies so much. I know Iron I'm Man. Right? Cinephile because I like, love Iron Man. <laughs> well, it started like really for me. I think in 2008 where I just like became obsessed with. The Dark Knight and Iron Man. And obviously comic book, it's so different than a lot of everything. But, you know, those two movies like really like inspired me to like dive deep into cinema and cinema history. So I was like, oh, The Godfather, that's one of the greatest movies of all time. I'm like 13 years old. Like I, I would, I got to watch this movie, but like I'm going to be the best. I'm going to read the book before I watch the movie. So I get the book. I'm literally like 13 years old. And I'm like reading this. I read the first 100 pages and I just I'm like reading's not my thing. I don't want to watch a movie. Right. So but I mentioned this because I read the first 100 pages and they do in detail talk about Sonny's cock. And it is disgusting. I literally never forget the way they describe it. It's I think it's his wife who's describing that his dick is so big that her guts feel like spaghetti after they have sex. <laughs> so I just want to throw that imagery out there for anyone who hasn't read the book and, and- uh, Maybe now that you're interested in reading the book. 
yeah so i don't really want to bring up the book too much just because i feel like that it the book is used too much to criticize the movie because it's like well it doesn't have this or it's too disgusting because the book had this but it's like but that's not part of the movie but yeah there was a lot of uh, a lot of cock talk in it and it, and the <laughs> woman that he has the affair with uh, i'm playing on her name right now the character um sh- doesn't she have uh something going on with her uh, with her vagina in terms of like being able to just have sex with a humongous cock like isn't that emphasized in the book as well <laughs> well you might be thinking of I forget what her character name is like there's a huge subplot in the book yeah about a character maybe she's like one of the sisters and she wants like surgery on her vagina yeah you yeah, know this is the, I don't really yeah, know that's the woman that, that he yeah. has sex with uh, in the movie at the wedding um I, that that's what I had heard that 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 was like a big emphasis in the plot, and I was like, "Well, I have no interest in reading that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why does anyone want to yeah, read about? I was that? like, "That has I nothing don't to do with the the mafia." <laughs> 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 it's so it's such a funny detail, but yeah, I think like that makes sense for Sonny. He is very boisterous. He thinks he knows what is right when he's not a thinking person. He just goes guns a blazing. Even his father is, he says, uh, Sonny was a bad Don, rest in peace. Like, it, it just never worked. It was never going to fit. He was too wild. And, you know, he goes after Carlo, as as we said, and, and a great, but also very goofy uh, ass kicking scene because there's a few missed punches. But there's also a lot of, like, he's biting his hand, he's kicking him while he's down. Um, but then that leads to his downfall and his death is that he would rather you know, he chooses violence to beat the shadow of the wrong people or just people he doesn't treat right. Um, and he goes down in a blaze of gunfire and glory in a way like that is a huge, like that is so visually violent. And so like, Oh my God, like for 1972, like nowadays it would be the same action, except there'd be more bloods and gore. Like half his body would have been torn apart, but it was seen. Oh, we, yeah. oh this shit we would have seen. if it, That was today. Well, well, nowadays, it would have just been filled with CGI where people get shot and it's a CGI bullet hole and it's the CGI squib squirt of blood yeah. and it never feels it never feels real. I don't care. I've seen so many movies. I can almost always tell when it's CGI. It is like very few and in between where it's so good that you don't notice it. And it's amazing in this scene. I, I think it has to go down as the best death or murder in this film because one, it's a character that we've kind of loved and, and kind of fallen for because James Caan is just so compelling as like a fun asshole. And it's just so explosive. I, I saw on the 50th anniversary, James Caan, God bless his heart, uh, passed recently, but he was talking about all of the explosions and all the squibs they had attached to him. And he said it was 146 squibs which are basically explosions he said himself if i were to put my hand in front of one of those squibs it would blow a hole through my hand they were literally that powerful and they did this scene entirely in in one take from what khan said himself so this was like in so impressive on so many levels that they were able to shoot this scene in this way with all these different and he said there was thousands of squibs all across the toll booth and that's why you see like so many bullets and shots and it's so amazing. It's so excessive. You know, I wonder why yeah. Coppola like decided that like this death had to be the most excessive because it was mo- the most painful, maybe the most like horrific because it's someone you love. 
No, I think it's that sense of realism that we're going to go for it. And, and like, if someone's going to get, you know, filled with uh, machine gun bullets, this is what it would look like. Uh, I just did a quick Google search, and the second link I found had this as the number one on-screen movie death. Uh, number two, just to give some context, <laughs> is uh, the chestbuster in Alien. So pretty iconic movie deaths if, if we're talking about stuff. Like, it's it's pretty wild, and it's very in your face. Um, I wonder if the toll booth uh, collector survived even himself because – there was a ton of bullet holes. In the oh, he was long gone. Yeah. He was long <laughs> gone. Was, but uh, just the coordination to make it happen, like that's where you get kind of like lost in the movie where you can like nitpick it so much where it's like, well, that would make no sense because they had to coordinate and know. And it's just like, but yeah, but they did it. And it's like pretty fucking wild, like how it it was done. And, you know, I is it, would you say it's a great performance or is it just like a very like an adequate and it works? No, I would say it's a great performance because you you believe him so much as this hothead. You know, he wants he's the hothead who wants to impress his father. He thinks that his dad wants him to be a macho man. He thinks yeah. that he needs to be this kind of like cowboy guy. But I think you could maybe look at that and be like, this guy's hamming it up. Like he's gone way too yeah. far. But I think that's what his character needed. Like, I think he needed to show that difference between Michael, the difference between Fredo. Like Fredo doesn't give a shit about killing people that guy and i barely know anything about fredo and that's yeah. really interesting because i haven't seen the second and third film he is very absent compared to the other two brothers but you can just tell from the little scenes that he has that he is more fun loving he wants to gamble he wants to have sex with prostitutes and random women like he doesn't really care he just cares about the greed and the fun aspect of being in the mafia yeah. but michael like wants to murder people like he wants to cause violence he wants to live this like level of macho life and i think james Con nails that on the head is that like brass kind of like intense energy that he has that he really brings to Sonny's character yeah so let's transition uh to the third son the third legitimate son of uh Cor of Vito Corleone and that is Fredo played by John Cazale um we're gonna talk about uh Cazale in in the next like several movies because he only shows up in best picture nominees and winners um so <laughs> Well, well, we're going to talk a lot about him, but this is our first introduction to him as an actor. And um, for those who, I guess, who don't know uh, about, you know, John Cazale, he, he unfortunately dies um, towards the end of the 70s of, of cancer. And it's just so tragic, but he's so, he's so good. He's, he has, I don't know what it is. There's just something about him that he does create that authenticity. He creates a certain weight. And yeah, it's a very small role in this movie with Fredo, but it says a lot about him. And probably his best scenes are the scenes where he doesn't talk much. It's where he's very emotional. The first being the the attempted assassination on his father, where he fumbles the gun, which is a little goofy. But then he sits there crying because he doesn't know what to do. He thinks his dad is dead. And that moment, he, he assumes his dad's dead and he just fucked up. Um, but fortunately he yeah. lives, but, and that's sort of revisited, um, where Vito is laying, he's back at home and, um, he already asked like, where's Michael? Like, where is he? And you know, they tell him he's not there, but then Fredo walks in and just sits and look at his dad and his dad is just staring off in the distance and it transitions right to Sicily, which shows that he's only thinking about Michael and not this son Fredo who is, does he mad at Fredo? Does he think that Fredo caused or, or could have prevented the attempted assassination or just as he always has 
this like quietness about him, but Fredo still has his admiration for his father. Um, and he is sitting with him. And then, then the last scene that we get in this movie with Fredo is that he was like kind of gotten shaking around by Mo Green and, uh, Michael did not like that. He told Fredo to not betray the family ever again. So yeah, what are your, you know, that's kind of like a very simplification. I think of the performance because there really just isn't too much of in the movie, but it, it is so effective and works, you know, incredibly well. Well, he just nails every scene and moment he has. I think, you know, I don't know if it's necessary that he needed to be like more throughout this film. It sounds like his character gets explored a little bit more in the second and third film, but it's interesting. He's like so absent from this movie yet. Like I know his character so well still, like I know the kind of person he is, especially from that Vegas trip. You really get to see who he is. You know, he's the fun loving brother. Like, Hey, well, you get that from the wedding. You get that from the wedding when he's drunk, but he's just so fun. He's like, this is my brother. Like again, that emphasis on just like the family. This is my brother, Michael, the way he's holding him and looking at him. Like he has so much love. There's so much love that's pouring out of Fredo. I'm so curious to see where he goes. Yeah, like, I don't want to talk about that. And, so we're gonna move right on. I know. Uh, oh, well, you have wait, wait before you before you move. Okay, I want to talk because I don't know anything about the second and third film. Really? Oh, you regard- want to talk about this now? Like yeah. what your predictions are? No, 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 okay. not not my prediction. Not my prediction. I want to talk about that. This film is so renowned and so well known that it's not only just reno- renowned and and spoken about as a film. People use the terminology Fredo. You know, they use it as like calling people Afredo. You know, you're like the, the the brother no one cares about, or you're like you're the annoying person here on the side, or you're the you're the betrayer, which is kind of what I've gotten from maybe hints of the second or, or third film. And I just think that's very special for a movie to kind of pierce through culture in that way. And maybe you could say that it's the trilogy that really kind of like pierced it and why it's extended all the way until twenty twenty three. But I'm a big fan. This is so random, but I'm a big fan of rap music. And Nas, one of the greatest MCs of all time, released a new album just last Friday. And you're laughing because you're like, what the hell is John talking about? Why is he talking about rap? Why is he talking about Nas? It's because he released a song with 50 Cent. And the chorus basically of this song is him talking about like being afraid of, like, don't be afraid of. Like, he's using it so much throughout this song that it's like, truly has pierced the culture it is 2023 and we have a rapper just continuously talking and referencing this character from a movie that is literally 51 years old and i think that is something i just had to bring up when we talk about fredo because it is so impactful and it makes me so eager and anticipating to like know what happens and (laughs) and why this character becomes such an important part of of our culture. It's so interesting, right? Like I'm sure you've heard people calling things Fredo or using that terminology outside of the Godfather, right? Yeah. I can't, I can't comment. I really can't. I, cause <laughs> if, if I comment, I'll say something and I, and I don't want to say something. I literally want to record this podcast, finish it with you tonight and start watching Godfather part two, because I, I have taken such, it's taken so much out of me to not watch the movie because of how good it is. Regard, like just, I can't comment. That's a very interesting observation. Um, that's uh, <laughs> we 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 sort of touched, I think, brief uh, briefly on Tom Hagen talking about that key scene with him and the Don. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about with Hagen, the the stepson, the the son that couldn't be legitimized, who couldn't, but he still has all the smart ideas and knows what to do. Talk about another 
actor performer that can just use his eyes oh my god dude Robert Duvall the way he just like will pan around the room he's watching everybody he knows he he is like the chess master he sees every move he's right by the king you know he truly is like the the queen to Don Vito's king and he sees everything and I, I love that he portrays that so well and he has that kind of like silent nature to him as well and I mean come on we haven't talked about you know, Jack Waltz, the producer and getting the horse head and the whole scene of Tom Hagen going to LA. I just love it. I mean, it one just captures like Hollywood and the sets. Uh, I wonder like what the backlot was. Like, I wonder if that was Paramount's backlot. It I, was. I didn't really look into that specifically. Of course it was yeah, right. It was. Like, of course it was, which is awesome. That's such a cool, like meta way of like looking behind the scenes and the way mafia has maybe like influenced some of cinema at this point, you know, like maybe some of, of the this movie is, too. They're, they're showing Oscar. Thank you for bringing that up because this has to be the first time that we've seen an Oscar, right? Like yeah. physically in a Best Picture winner. Maybe the first time like ever in a movie. I doubt it. Like I'm sure there's some movie here and there that has an Oscar in it or something like Did that. But Sunset Boulevard yeah. have an Oscar? Do they do they talk about that a little? I'm trying to, to think. They may have. May, you know, maybe. I would be shocked if in 1972 yeah. was the first time you see an actual Oscar on film in a movie, but it's definitely the first time for a Best Picture. I yeah. think we can hands down I think say it, that. It probably could be the first time it's, it's been in a movie. I, I, It's not very common that they're in it. And that, like, the only other one I can think of right now that comes to mind is The Fablemans. The Fablemans has it. Um, but I don't really remember other times. About, but it... it doesn't really matter. It's just a silly little statue anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think we hit on like the characters and, and I think that's like really helped with, the, with talking about the scenes and the, the story structure of this. Um, I think we, we should talk about the production of this and there's a lot of ways to tackle it. We, um, I think though the, the biggest thing that I really want to talk about um, and I think it's one of the most contentious part of the production and the look of this movie is the cinematography. We haven't really talked about much about the cinematography and the, the boundaries that, that, uh, that Coppola, um, and Gordon Willis go through in terms of, uh, you know, pushing the frame to total darkness, to almost complete darkness, to these like backdrops, like in, especially in the beginning when everything is dark, um, in the background, but, and they're wearing these suits that blend in. So it just looks like these like floating heads, these floating body. It's so, such a cool visual, especially with these 4k restorations that we got. Um, me and you, you know, we didn't even talk about, we saw this movie in, in a theater in Dolby cinema. Was it last, last year? Yeah. Or? I mean, we're so lucky that we got to see this. You know, we, we love movies so freaking much. I mean, we love going especially to the theater and seeing it with a crowd and, experiencing it all like firsthand with a big screen let alone seeing the godfather remastered in beautiful 4k then projected in with dolby like the best sound design and the and, like sound design in a theater that you can really get it is so so amazing i mean hearing the incredible music by nino rota in dolby good stuff absolutely amazing oh so good and you're, you're so right. I mean, it's hard not to talk about light and dark when you talk about The Godfather. I love how you describe it as like floating heads in the darkness. And I always think of like noir films when you think of like darkness in films and light and dark and shadows. And when you look at noir films, you don't really get many like characters just like sitting in the darkness having conversations. It's like a hint 
in the dark. You know, maybe there's a scene of a character walking through the dark, but it's not like The Godfather where you're just entrenched in it. This is the world that the characters are in at all times. And they're just kind of like in the seedy darkness and then they cut to the bright exterior of the wedding. I think that perfectly contrasts and sets us up for the two worlds that these the family is trying to kind of adapt and live in. And it's just beautiful. I mean, we talked a little about Sicily, this beautiful cinematography, how they fought to kind of actually shoot and and have the production like locally in Italy and, and have it feel that authentic and real. And I mean, I love the static shots, the big wide shots that we get, you know, letting scenes breathe. I think obviously of the iconic you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. It's such a beautiful shot. You have like the dynamic images with using the foreground, background, and like, you know, middle ground to create this like compelling, juicy image. It's beautiful. And we talked somewhat about the color design too. And it's the movie's so like yellow and, and kind of and grungy in a way, but it, it really fits you in that setting. It feels like a period piece, but it feels timeless at the same time, right? Yeah, and I think it's going for that timeless effect. It's trying to look like what would a you know a nineteen forties maybe movie look like if it was on colored film. Um, I think it really does that well, and I love just the black. I love how characters' eyes are in total shadow. Um, I think it's such a cool idea. Like I know for me, like when when I take photography when I play around with cameras, I really like to take the exposure down as much as I can. How much? Because then you can capture so much detail as well. It really does help to do that, which I think is what makes these 4K restorations so beautiful. Is like how dark it is and how much you, detail you can get out of it when it becomes so close and personal. It's not these huge vistas, although it does have that. They do it with Hollywood. They do it with Sicily and Italy. Uh, but it's such, you know, it, these great close-up shots. It looks so different. It does not look like a movie from any other era as well like it, it, the way the shots are all set up the the angles like it's just such a distinct look and i think that that's what helps when we talk about it as a masterpiece or a best picture is because of how different it is and it, it's unique only to the godfather movies yeah no you're absolutely right i mean even compare it to the french connection Patton, oliver and midnight cowboy blows you know, the, the last blows the, well, five movies yeah i'll even include midnight cowboy as well it, it blo- the cinematography of this man now now we're just thinking about like just best picture winners like is this the best looking movie since lawrence of arabia probably man it's so hard to say because you know i love the way midnight cowboy looks but it's so different it's so much it's a lot more about the color it's a lot more like contrasty in terms of like the bright uh, primary colors that you see throughout that movie Patton I feel like it's hard to judge because we haven't have a good full restoration of it the French connection is so gritty and gross looking but that's like so intentional yeah I don't think it's crazy to say that may be some of the best cin- cinematography but I don't know I really love like Midnight Cowboy and In the Heat of the Night it's just a toss-up it's hard to like pick best cinematography because it's it should honor the subject matter and the characters and the film and and everything about it maybe the most original cinematography in terms of like the way the film feels and looks i think you might be able to argue argue we haven't seen like the most originality yeah maybe since i don't know of arabia i'm watching sunny get blown up right now and there's some crazy shots (laughs) of like 
facing the guns as they're going off that as Sonny is dying it's this pan it, he just did it it's a tilt up on Sonny he, he's looking up the sky and then as he falls down the camera pans down with him uh, I guess it's more a tilt down tilts down with him and he falls to the ground and they lands right with it's like such a, a great movement in, in the shots it's so simple like everything about and again like just expanding onto this conversation of the production you know, when we talk about best picture, I think it's the best production of all time. The best like, showing of what a film production is, like how it can be authentic, the issues you run into, how you overcome them, how art defies the studio system, how how important it is to be a, an alter filmmaker in every possible way in every job on the set. Um, I think that it does that to every single part. Um, so, and I think that that's what makes this a great movie is the production is so historic and and, and ch- it defied everything that it, it was up against yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean you can see that when you watch a f- like a show like the offer and you can see just how much went through this movie no one thought this was going to be a masterpiece Nobody. they thought it would be like a hit people are interested in the godfather it, it was one of like the biggest books uh, of all time so they had like an idea that people like this subject but no one knew that it would reach this level of success be the highest grossing movie of all time i mean no one really thought it would be that yeah i that's the thing is like i think they was it a is it a b movie like what is that what they thought it would be but it was such a popular book and they're you know like robert evans who's the head of fucking paramount and you know in terms of at least like green lighting movies he was so involved in it. like the way that that it, like his involvement in it, in it it's like it makes it so hard to, for me to believe they didn't think it would it would be a big you know success. But hey, maybe that's just it. Sometimes when you're a good studio exec, you just know the movies are what's going to work, yeah. whether it's a big number or not at the box office. But they hit, they struck gold. They struck gold with this movie. When, yeah, when they did not believe th- in it at all. I think some of that worry from Paramount comes from their last mafia film which is a Technicolor film called The Brotherhood from 1968, which was like such a big bomb. And they swore off mafia films for like four years until The Godfather. And it's probably because they were so worried about like this huge bomb. You know, they're spending all this money. They wanted to do it cheap, probably because they saw how The Brotherhood performed. And they're like, okay, we'll make a mafia movie, but like we'll cut it down. We'll make it cheaper, modern, kind of make it as fast as possible. And then we have this whole changing of the guard and bringing Coppola and he wants to do it in the 40s like it should be the way it's always been intended. And that balloons the budget that like brings in all these sort of complications. And then you have complications with the mafia. You have complications with just Brando himself. Like I said, the 60s was not the best time for Brando. He kind of struggled and didn't really land in terms of like successful box office films. So there's just so much against this movie. And I think... If you really want to like throw out that like it's one of the best movies ever made, I think because there's so much going against it, so much that they were trying to do that was new, that like there are so many things that could have gone wrong, and there was a lot that did go wrong. Yet the final product of The Godfather is incredible. It's so engaging and moving, and it's just hard to look away at any single scene. And I think you described it so perfectly. It is just it's master filmmaking. Every scene is compelling and interesting and you forget about the weird time things. You forget about the stupid little errors and issues because you're so invested in the story because 
Coppola lets it all melt away and you can just see the events. You can see what's going on and feel for these characters and feel like you're in a, a, you know, a leather seat right next to the Don. You're right there listening to these characters speak and you're just waiting to see what happens. You know, who, who takes on the throne at the end. Yeah. And I oh mean, just again, like I, I've said before, we, I watched the movie as we're talking about it and talking about like establishing a shot, how to direct a character getting a scene moving and, and constructing it all. So this is the moment where they go into the funeral parlor and the shot is so simple of just the funeral director looking um, at the, he has the body next to his left, but he's looking at a doorway and out from the shadows comes Marlon Brando. Now, usually a character coming out of the shadows would be more sinister. There's something like a plot twist, but he's a sad, a sad puppy. He's uh, over his son. He, he's, you know, look how they massacred my boy and the way, the shot is designed where it's black and he comes in and it's, he's still like mostly enveloped in it besides his like the top of his chest and the floating head. It's so like, Whoa, like that is visually crazy. And then it hits you right into this emotional scene. And that's all Coppola. That's all Gordon Willis. That's all the other filmmakers on the set deciding how they were going to do it. And it, and they just let Brando go. They wind him up and say, okay, go ahead, go play within this world that we've created. And it, it's so real and authentic. It, it's some of the best uh, directing. And I, I think that's like a thing we have to talk about too. It's just like, is this one of the best directed movies? Is there something to say about that in terms of his direction in it? Yeah, no, I think that's very valid. I think you can totally say it's one of the best directed movies. I think we've kind of picked apart the way Coppola has designed it, you know, that emotional deposit. I think he's doing things that directors wouldn't, kind of dream and push to do and obviously there's incredible filmmakers that we've seen and kind of come across with the best picture list but I think in in the contender Brando had such a love for Kazan and such a love for a streetcar named Desire and how he just like adored these characters and how he really dove deep into these performances and that's why that film works so well and I think it's the same thing for Coppola here I think he just he knows that it's all about character in this film. If you don't believe the characters, if you don't feel like the authenticity of the world, then none of this will work. It will all just feel like, uh, you know, a charade or something that's completely just a rip off of what we've seen in the thirties. But now 40 years later, it's just like, okay, now it's in color. Cool. We get to see some people die, but no, you care about all these characters. And it's because of that amazing direction, because he's fueling our actors to like feel these emotions and to prepare. And I love, I just keep going back to the, the idea of like setting up your characters as they're meeting for the first time and kind of learning that interaction and how maybe the character has changed from when the film starts and when you truly meet this character. It's really, really compelling stuff. And I think you could easily say it's one of the best directed films that we've watched so far on our best picture list here. So I know uh, we don't want to hit off on every scene, but there's a couple things here that I really want to hit on in terms of some final scenes. I love, love the scene. Obviously, we have the the death of Don, which will totally get to the death of Vito. That'll definitely be something we speak about. But I wanted to talk about the scene between the Don and Michael. And it's the scene that you might recognize called, I never wanted this for you. You know, it's the scene where the Don, it's really the first and only scene that we have with the Michael and Don head on up until this point 
up until this point in the film. We haven't really seen them kind of come together. You know, Michael has visited his dad in the hospital. He gives that beautiful tear, but it's not really a full conversation. We're not getting too much of their full dialogue and their relationship. So this is the full reveal of Don Vito and how he just feels about the situation, how he feels that Michael is now the chosen son for the heir. He's kind of haunted by this. He he pleads into him like, I wanted you to be more. You know, I wanted you to be, you know, a, the governor Corleone. He wanted him to go beyond just a mobster mafia man. He wanted him to grow and be, you know, real and authentic to who he was as a person because he knew Michael didn't want this. He knew that this was not the best destiny for him. So it's it's really compelling just on a pure character level between the Don and Michael. And yeah, I just I really love this scene. I love the way that he it's so slow paced still with the way Don is like beckoning of, you know, if only I had more time, if only I had more time, you know, things could have been different. He could have changed things and, and manipulated things so that he would leave his family and leave his son with a better kind of business and a better throne to be left on. So, Ben, I wanted to ask you, I love this scene where, you know, Don Vito sits down with Michael and he says, you know, I never wanted this for you. I didn't I didn't want this life. I didn't want you to go down this path. So wh- what did you think of of this, you know, iconic scene between Michael and the Don? And also, it's so interesting that we don't really see these two characters, our pivotal main characters. We don't really see them interact fully until very close to the end of the movie where he's pleading to him like we don't have to do this. Like you don't have to go down this road. Yeah, I, it's one of the best you know scenes of, of the entire film. It, it's so well coordinated. Um, it, yeah, it's it is fascinating that they don't really interact much until this scene, and it's just kind of like passing down the torch. Like this, that's what it feels like. It's like okay, you're you're in charge. You know, these are the secrets. Here are my thoughts. This is you know my honest confessions about like what it's like to lead and um, and you know, who's going to backstab you, what you got to look for. And it's the nature of the job. Uh, and it, it's such a great moment. There's a lot of emotions to it. Um, it's definitely one of the key scenes to me in the film. And, and that's why it's so interesting when compared to the scene with the Don and Hagen, cause I felt like that was more the emotional core. This one is like the logical core of the movie that this is where logic comes in and like how you have to be ruthless, um, as a leader. Yeah, that's amazing. I think we can't not address the death of the Don, right? You know, (laughs) it is such an iconic scene that has its own improvisation in it. You know, we have the Don playing with his grandchild and he puts an orange peel in his mouth and they're in the garden and he scares the grandchild, which uh, some behind the scenes, like that was a genuine reaction. I don't think that was in the script originally, the putting the teeth in and scaring the kid. But what it does is it scares this kid. You know, it, it's the Don trying to, like, relate and be a nice grandfather to his kid and, like, play fun and have a good time with his grandson. But he, the grandson doesn't understand that. You know, he is still a child. He, You know, everything is scary and everything is fun at the same time for children. And it's such a interesting reaction. It feels so genuine from the kid, and it is. But then it works so well because it, it flips the whole thing on its head where you have him die and it's like so dramatic and it's sad that, you know, he just kind of boom, just falls and dies. But 
the fact that the kid, his grandson, goes over and now he thinks his grandfather's still playing a game with him. He thinks he just like, you know, passed out for fun as if it's a joke. But he squirts him with a squirt gun. Like I just found that like so interesting. The kid is is now doing something that is, is so childlike and he thinks it's still just a fun game and, and it's not, you know, it's death. It's so real and, and earnest and probably very traumatic for this kid, but the kid just doesn't see that yet. And it makes the entire death feel even more tragic that way that, you know, that this kid is left with the death of his grandfather right in front of him. It's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking and it's fascinating that Puzo would kind of take the Ardan, and I'm assuming this comes from the book because I, as I mentioned, did not finish the book. That he would take Ardan and you know build him up in this way and show how awesome and grandiose this man was, and then have him die in this way. And in a way, it is kind of like a gentle, nice death. He doesn't get blazed with tons of bullets like his son does, like he did earlier in the film. He dies with his family. You know, enjoying time with his grandson, something he probably loved to do. And that is what makes it even more powerful. It's that it's not some dramatic Tony Soprano gunned down in a diner, which awesome ending, super cool. But it's heartfelt. And it again comes back to the family, to the Don's love for his family. And it's not even a character that we know very well. I, we don't even know the grandson's name. He just happens to be there, but we understand the context of Don Vito and his love for family and how important family is to him. So, Ben, I wanted your thoughts on the death of the Don and how do you feel about the grandson being there and being scared and then thinking he's playing a joke on him? Yeah, one thing, uh, yeah, they don't really... The whole kid stuff in in the in this movie is... I talk, you know, We talked about it two hours ago. Uh, it's one of the weakest parts is like where their son, I think it's Anthony. Uh, yeah. Anthony, where he just shows up out of nowhere and it's just like, what, where do we get this? And you know, whatever it leads, <laughs> it leads to the Don's death, which is just so sad. And like, again, like almost like kind of unexpected. Cause all of a sudden he's old, like, he's t- so old that he just collapses, you know, has a heart attack and it's really sad, but it also is like the, Oh shit. Like, Oh my God. Like, because he's dead, now we're going to reach, you know, like the this like big next step for Michael of like having to navigate that and like what's next. You know, there's so much so many implications of like his death. Um, it's a it's not the best death scene of the movies, um, but it's it's still impactful. It's no sunny dying. That's it's all the I'll most say. emotional is is how I feel. It's it's so tender because it's like that's probably how he wanted to die you know being with his family not gunned down not murdered and you know he gets to spend his final moments just enjoying his spawns offspring you know like it's so interesting it is i'm just gonna let you just make that statement because that is a great observation um of vito corleone so i i don't want to say much else there's so many things I want to say. <laughs> There's so much I want to say because it's, it's so connected. But that's what makes this movie so hard to talk about of uh, like just alone because there because so many people are, are like huge fans like Star Wars. Everybody wants to talk about Star Wars, but no one ever wants to really, you know, it would be so hard to talk about like just episode four without the context of Darth Vader is Luke's father. Like as he got like the, yeah. uh, uh, everything we know 
it's really hard to look at that movie and so many like these great movies without looking at the the sequels, especially if they're really good sequels. Um, it's hard to put them like put them in separate boxes and uh, yeah, it it. I think we just got to get talk about now the ending of the whole movie and the the death of the five families and what Michael uh, digs up. Um, one, the whole montage is just classic cinema of what again, like what Coppola is doing is the most simplest things. How am I gonna show the deaths of this? Well, I'm gonna build it up with this montage sequence of of build up that everybody's getting ready. Watch him getting shaved. We watch him putting the guns together. Watch him dressing up as a cop. Watching where all these people are walking and trying to figure it out. Then juxtaposing that and the intercutting of Michael becoming the godfather of Connie's. I don't know which baby of Connie's this is because she's pregnant for a few years, I guess, in the movie. I don't know. Like that. There's a whole. That's a whole other discussion with time. So he becomes the godfather. Um, and you know, was the line of just like, do you accept Satan? Uh, do you renounce over, Satan? Renounce Satan yeah. Do you yourself I renounce Satan? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, six six six, baby. Woo! Woo! <laughs> yeah, no, no, and you're so right. It is the perfect example of a montage. It's the combination of, you know, you're barely getting any dialogue, and the dialogue is just contextual for the the scene of being becoming a godfather, and it's really simple. And you know, he's renouncing Satan while he's murdering so many people and it's this combination with the beautiful music builds up and it, it you can't go without saying that this could have been a very generic death scene where it could have just been you know scene after scene of them running up and gunning someone down in a car the way that they specifically make sure that every death and murder is different it's unique it's probably something you've never even seen in a movie before being stuck in like the turnstiles of an entrance of a hotel or being gunned down the steps and the body rolling down like it, it, they really try so hard to make them all feel unique and different and that is such a small little detail that I found so fascinating and obviously it's dramatic and bloody and so fun to watch as a film yeah but that's something that I don't think it's talked about enough well I have a personal story with the ending too and violence in this movie and you know when we talk about not showing kids and censoring stuff I was a little kid you know my dad was watching The Godfather just like walked into his room while I was watching it I must have been six or seven and right as I walked in I was like what's this he's like oh it's The Godfather it's like right as we're setting it up and bam Mo Green gets shot in the eye and I just remember walking out of the room being like, I don't think I'm too old for, to watch this movie. I'm going to go to bed. And all I could, and that image of being shot in the eye of just like, that would suck <laughs> to have that happen to you. So that, that like stuck in my head for so long. And then I watched the movie. And, and when that happened, because I'm like gearing for it. And, and I'm like, oh, like this is where it happens. Like when that happens again, I had, I saw that same shock value as I had as a kid of just like, oh my God, fuck. I don't want to get shot in the eye. That's that, that is truly awful. That would, that would really it's suck. so visceral it's so visceral and you watch it and you're like how 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 did they do that like i still 50 years later i'm like i have no idea how they did that that was so impressive like yeah i don't know if man could they have used could they possibly use some sort of like dummy and like a really quick cut of when he gets shot of like as the glasses break like that's where they do a cut that like matches I don't know. I, it doesn't I don't, look like it. It doesn't. Right? Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't. I don't know how. Like, they I have it. no idea. I like 
I tried to find some information on that specific scene and I like couldn't find it because I was I just like you I was fascinated by the eye shot the the cracking of the glass combined with the pooling of the blood yeah. like instantly I'm mean, it's kind of ridiculous that his head slowly just comes down yeah but in a way it's like even more creepy right like yeah. ooh, you were disturbing yeah I think that's one of the things too because you're you know I feel like today if someone was to be shot in the eye like it would just be like blood coming out from the back of their head it wouldn't be the blood yeah, coming definitely. forward so it's so yeah and it's like that red it's like really thick blood it does not look like real blood but like that's also from no. today's like standards whereas again for 72 like that was people must have been like oh, what the fuck <laughs> like not expecting <laughs> yeah. that like oh my god <laughs> yeah like, yeah, and I think, you know, people have criticized the film and saying, like, it's not violent enough. And I think there was, like, some of that back in 72, but I think that is more of a kind of statement that has evolved over time as we've gotten more violent in films and have shown more and more and more. And now that we're watching John Wick 4 and he's just headshotting hundreds of people in a movie, <laughs> just boom, 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 on to the next person, boom, 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 boom. So... I don't really think that was that much of a critique in 72, which we try to kind of look at these films from the context of when they were released. I think that is something that has evolved over time where we've just gotten so used to just headshot and gun yeah. violence and death after death. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, and, and that's what's fascinating when talking about this era of movie, there's so much critique of it. Like how necessary is it? Is it appropriate? It, it's effective and it's, it's very interesting to watch, you know, and you know, humans are kind of sick people. So we enjoy these things. I mean, talk about visceral, you know, and not to get, you know, we're going to get into the Oscar soon, but like a movie like deliverance, the squeal, like a pig scene, that's more <laughs> disturbing than I think anything in the Godfather, but yet the Godfather yeah, that's is very the fair. one talked about, uh, as the violent, the like oh my god there's so much in this movie um but it's the most popular one not many people talk about deliverance like they do about the godfather yeah you're right and we'll we'll talk more about deliverance yeah. trust me we will yeah um, i want to talk just that kind of wrap the godfather up yeah. with really like the final shots the final moments of this movie as much as you hate Kay adams she is the last thing we see before we see credits yeah i know can how do you feel can, about that <laughs> can we talk about carlo and just like that scene when uh, michael is telling him like uh, you know who, that they killed everybody and just carlo's just like knows he's fucked <laughs> and, and he just has to like get through that Man, like that, yep. like that's so haunting, and disturbing, and then like that's great. I kind of wish the movie ended on like that death of like Michael just looking at Carlo being strangled in the car, and then that's how it ends. But then Connie does that whole shrieking thing, and like even that could have just wow. been the ending of like that. Connie confronts him, and he's like, "No, I didn't do it." He said, and I love her. He's just like, "Get a doctor," just like so cool and calm and quiet. Just like, just just get her a doctor. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's wild yeah and then yeah it ends on the, you're cr you're crazy how am i crazy because you're saying that one of the most iconic endings of all time the door closing on his wife the lying to her face yeah this iconic scene and truthfully why i think this movie is so beloved is it's such a compelling beginning and such a compelling ending that you will remember and you will talk about and you'll discuss what that means and and did she know he was lying? Did he? Did she just like, you know, see through it and, and saw how their relationship was going to forever be corrupted by this moment? 
you know, it is such an important aspect to this film. And I think it's like the perfect thing to end on him becoming this new person, becoming the bull. You know, he starts this movie as like a young calf, deny, deny, deny. And it's not until he fully lies to this person that he says he's going to forever commit himself to. And she knows it. In my opinion, I love to know your thoughts on whether she thinks, you know, he's lying or not. But I truly believe that she sees it. She knows that he's lying. No, I don't think that like that's the thing is that. And I think that that's why I don't like her at all is because she gives us this sense of just like that. She's so stupid and naive. Like, why would you like ask? I don't get that at all. Like, like you really like like she really doesn't realize that everything that's going on has to do with the mob. Like he tells her everything like she's that naive to it that she has to ask him. Are you involved with you know with it? So just like and the, and the way he says it too, he's like, "Although you asked me about my affairs this one time, like, like what do you think he's doing, man? Like, and, and that's where I just I that's where I just it. get like, I like she's she pulls me out way too much unless you're really trying to say unless they're trying to say the audience is that stupid, the outside world is that dumb. Like we all know the mob exists. I. Yeah, but I, beyond just it's her as a character, it's them as a marriage, them as a couple and, you know, committing to someone and saying, like, I'm never going to lie to you, you know, but you always have to stay out of my business. She knows, you know, but she knows before he, she even asked that he did it. She just wants him to admit it. You know, if he can admit it, then she can fully believe and probably will try to end their marriage. Probably most likely she wants to see if Michael is able to admit what he's done is if he's like the man that she thought he was and turns out, no, he wasn't. He is so committed to this business. He's so committed to the family. She's never going to be on the same level as him. And I think that is what seals the deal for him. And I don't agree with you at all. I think her performance in this is, is haunting and it's why the film works. It's, it's her like look of like I don't even fucking know you. Like we have kids together. We've spent years together, but this is the real Michael. This is who you are. And it's like the horror in her face of just like open mouth like what the fuck and door closing like that is so dramatic and and that's why I think the movie's so popular is because here we are 50 years later still debating whether that's the way you kind of see the ending. That's the way you see the film. It's awesome. I yeah. mean, that is why we like love movies so much, you know, to discuss them and analyze and relate to them, you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Like, I, I think it's like, you know, we talked, you know, you said like, this is one of the best endings to a movie. I don't know. Like, I think there are better endings to like so many more movies to different Godfather movies. Maybe <laughs> like Frodo, we're going home. Like, <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't know, man. I just, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I really just don't like Diane Keaton. My God, uh, she is so, <laughs> so fucking annoying. Oh, she's so annoying. I don't know, but that's just me. That like, I just there's certain. Uh, I, it pulls me out. It's like, like I don't know. Like, I don't know. If she's really that necessary to the to the movie. I really don't think she's that necessary. I think that they could have been just as effective. And, like, I, again, like, The Sopranos, which takes so much influence of it, like, you can say the Melfi character is supposed to be us, but 
everyone's aware of like what of that of this thing of that everyone knows the mafia exists and i just feel like if you're if, if you're married to somebody who is potentially in it you should probably be more aware and not feel so naive about it <laughs> and shouldn't have taken after you want a carmella is a, what you want oh do i want a carmella <laughs> that's what apollonia <laughs> could have been was our carmella she would have been <laughs> up his ass can all right can <laughs> Can Kay Adams make a good a good sauce? Do you think she could? No. Well, she's not Italian, so I mean, it would have exactly. been really exactly. <laughs> it would have been a really interesting conversation, honestly, and and that's why I think there's there was more to mine in that relationship. But I, I understand this is almost a three hour movie. Like it's it's such a juggling act, and and to think that there was a cut of this movie that was like around two hours. Like what is that movie? You know, like it's probably way more incoherent. And and yeah. we complain about the time issues and not knowing when is when and what's happening when but imagine two hours of this man it probably feels like insanely quick it probably feels just so confusing beyond anything that we can even imagine yeah it's probably so rushed at the beginning too (laughs) i'm glad that 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 what happened with the production the behind the scenes that they paramount just greenlit it just said all right just go just like fine have pacino fine have brando fine film in new york just fine 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 just just get out of out of here and they did it and it worked out almost perfectly um i think to kind of wrap up the discussion on the film itself um i want to ask what's your favorite behind the scenes trivia story could it be something like from a, a technical standpoint like what what's a story or something that you found that you really liked that um that maybe people don't really talk about as much Oh, well, I was going to say something that was so talked about. <laughs> so I'll I'll do two then. I'll do two. So one is the initial kind of, it wasn't an audition. Brando was like offered the part entirely by Coppola. Coppola was dead set on having him as, as the lead or have as Vito. I think we debated over the lead for sure. But I think the whole process of Coppola bringing like a cameraman or two to Brando's house and like just seeing what Brando feels about this character, maybe like workshopping the character and they show up and Brando just like, you know, walks out in a, in a Japanese Komodo and he's just like talking to them and slowly becoming the Don, you know, putting grease in his hair and, and putting tissues in his cheek and like becoming that character before him and Coppola have even like, you know, broke it down shows just the level of commitment that Brando has his like obsession with characters and finding truth and, and just like constant pursuit of that. So I love that. And the fact that he had so much of that character just like down already before a day of shooting, it's, it's fascinating. I, I just love that. It's so, so, so cool. Let me think besides of what we've talked about, I think something that's interesting that only happens a couple times in this movie is that Gordon Willis really wanted the camera angles to be at like eye height to feel like you're one of the members of the family to feel like you're in the room with them to to feel as if you're looking uh, at these characters and I think you see a couple differences in some shots and it's mainly when we're about to see Vito die the first time this first assassination there is this kind of what Coppola would call God's eye view a shot looking down from above at at Vito's like lifeless bleeding body 
And from our point of view, like you don't really realize that, you know, that's definitely something that comes from more research, but then you can see it so perfectly because it is true. Gordon Willis did shoot most of the movie that way. And he argued with Coppola over this take, but it, it does add like, it's such an interesting detail. And especially when you see like his dead body at the very end in the garden and this like overhead shot, it, it it's haunting. It is really haunting because when you build up this kind of repertoire with the audience that this is the movie this is the dialogue this is kind of the structure and this is the way we look and see the film to then take us out of it with like that top angle view it it happens I think only two times in the whole movie both related to Vito's death and I think it just mm, chef's kiss it's beautiful it just works perfectly to like truly enhance that moment but Ben you tell me what is some tidbits that you have yeah, so I think I have two. The first one is there's no mention of mafia, mob, gang at all in the movie. That that was one of the concessions that the filmmakers supposedly made with actual mob members that they would not defame Italians or the mo- or this idea of them all being in a mafia by mentioning the word. Um, so that's why like the idea of family is so strong and it's so in, like when we talk about gangster movies, it's not a gangster movie. It's a family epic in many ways. Um, so I really love the, the screenplay, how smart it is. It's such a smart and it ties back it, to itself in so many different ways. One, for example, is, you know, the cake maker from the wedding talking about, oh, I, I want my baker Enzo to be in the country and marry my daughter. I get a green card and Enzo shows up. We actually get to meet Enzo in this very <laughs> small role, but it's, it's so simple, but it works so well. Um, so there's so many different ways that the movie connects back to itself and uh, continues to do that in the other movies. Um, my second favorite, and this is a behind the scenes thing. Um, I think this is, this is kind of the perfect way to end the, the podcast, John, um, is that there's a great deal of a uh, mooning on set. Um, <laughs> which was started by uh, James Conn and Robert Duvall. So um, this is a great full story. So in an effort to break some tension during re- a rehearsal for the first scene, uh, the pair mooned Coppola, Brando, and Salvatore Crescido. Uh, Conn told Time Magazine, my best moon was on 2nd Avenue. Bob Duvall and I were in one car and Brando was in another. So we drove up beside him and I pulled down my pants and stuck my ass out the window. Brando fell down in the car with laughter. Uh, Richard Bright claimed that it got to the point where every time you turned open the door, you expected to see someone's behind. Even Al Pacino got in the act as he told Ladies Home Journal, in a scene where I sit behind a desk, wardrobe made a big fuss about getting me a shirt with a small collar. So when while everyone was looking at the shirt, I took off my pants. When I came out from behind the desk, I got a laugh, even though we had to do the scene over. And the ultimate moon came when Brando and Duvall mooned 400 cast and crew members during the shooting of the wedding scene. They planned it carefully, and James Caan, who overheard the plan, started to shout, No, 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 not here. Uh, Everyone on, on the production and most of the extras roared with laughter. Some of the older ladies, though, did not appreciate the view. Uh, eventually Brando was crowned best prankster designated by a heavyweight style leather belt with the title moon champion. (laughs) I don't know what's more to say. Like that sounds like a great set to be on. Um, does that teeter on the edge of me too kind of shit? Yeah. 
but it's pretty funny when you yeah, think about that these guys were <laughs> mooning each other as they're driving down the city in full character. You have a you just great actors just having fun, um, albeit a boys club, but it's still having a lot of fun on set. It it created a, a good family bond, and I think like that's the essence of what is ultimately captured in The Godfather. It is a hundred percent a family movie. Now, is it four families to watch together? I don't know, but it's a family movie. I think you're exactly right. There's no way I can top that beautiful comparison to Mooning and how the chemistry from the cast like is so apparent on film. There's no better way to say it and combine it with just the ridiculous nature of that, you know, the ridiculous nature of pulling off pranks. It also shows just like the evolution that we've seen over the past 50 years of like comedy and being a prank and like the way the internet has kind of like changed and everything has to be bigger and crazier, but come on someone showing your butt. It's still funny. There's always going to be a level of like humor and, and funny personality in that. Yeah. A little, little weird me too. stuff. Yeah. We can go down that road, but I think that's a perfect way to end the conversation on the Godfather. Yeah. So let's end it here with a time of the Godfather and jump into the 45th. Academy Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Academy Award winning screenwriter, Mr. Daniel Taradash. Thank you, Angela Lansbury and company and our music director, John Williams. Good evening. One of the vital signs of an art is the enchantment it holds for youth. Today, the Denim generation is into movies in wildly accelerating numbers. In the United States alone, 613 colleges and universities offer 2,818 film courses, not to mention high schools and even elementary schools. Thus, the Academy estimates that by the end of the century, there will be 1,840,605 filmmakers in this country. Therefore, in the year 2000, when we bring you the 72nd Academy Awards, instead of five nominees in each category, there will be 37, and this program will run nine hours and 28 minutes. (laughs) Another mark of vitality in an art is the interest shown in it by the general public. Film is the most controversial, the most talked about, the most reviewed art of all. Movie critics and movie societies abound, proclaiming their 10 best lists from here to Bombay. But the judgments are made mainly by people who can't produce a movie, or write, or direct one, or edit one, or compose music for one, or, well, tonight, the professionals are the reviewers. The Academy is celebrating the vitality of films by reviewing itself. To start us off, a real professional, Mr. Clint Eastwood. Uh, He's supposed to be Charlton Heston's um, part of the show, but somehow he hasn't shown up. So who do they pick? They pick the guy who hasn't uh, said but three lines in 12 movies to uh, substitute for him. I don't... <laughs> so... 
if, uh, if you don't mind, yeah, okay. If you don't mind, I'll just keep this book next to me. So Heston is supposed to say something uh, about uh, something biblical here, <laughs> referring to him playing Moses. And he says, when I brought the tablets down from the mountains, Cecil B. DeMille research staff assured me that there would be only 10 commandments. See, these people were wrong. There are 11 commandments. The 11th commandment comes from the federal communication system, so spoke the commission. Thou shalt have full disclosure. Come on, flip the card, man. <laughs> this isn't my bag, I'll tell you. <laughs> In the book of Genesis, it is written that the first day, all eligible Academy members are asked to vote for nominations for the best picture of the year. On the second day, the other nominations are made. When I brought those tablets down from the mountain, C.B. knows <laughs> I should have brought that staff. There are 11. The 11th commandment comes from the Federal Communications Commission. Thus spake the commission, thou shalt have full disclosure. In the book of Genesis, it is written that on the first day, all eligible Academy members are asked to vote for nominations for the best picture of the year. On the second day, the other nominations are made by members of the Academy branches, specialists in their fields. Actors nominate actors, film editors nominate film editors, and so on. On the third day, these votes having begat the nominations, Academy members vote by secret ballot for all the awards of merit. On a fourth day, they send their ballots directly to the Academy's independent accountants, the three wise men, Price, Waterhouse, and Company. <laughs> the results are known only to these sages who speaketh in no tongues, to no man, no how. On a fifth day, which this year happens to be tonight, representatives of that firm will hand the sealed envelopes containing the winners' names to the presenters, and behold, the names will be revealed. On a sixth day, the tinkling of cymbals and the gnashing of teeth will echo through the Hollywood land. On the seventh day, Price Waterhouse and Company rests. Hallelujah. The 45th Academy Awards were held on April 27, 1973 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, and the host consisted of Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Rock Hudson, and Charlton Heston. This year was the first time that two African-American women received nominations for Best Actress, and this was also the first year when all the Oscar winners were brought on stage at the end of the ceremony. The show drew a television audience of 85 million viewers, the highest ever up until this point. Charlton Heston got a flat tire on the way to the ceremony and arrived late. To take his place, Clint Eastwood stepped in to surprise the audience. Yeah, and when uh, Clint Eastwood kind of steps in, he's clearly like, I have no idea what I'm doing. and uh, <laughs> I should not be here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes sense because it should definitely be Charlton Heston. Like, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense to have him there. But it, it's kind of like someone who works in live production. Like, that is kind of sometimes the magic of what comes out of live production is, like, the mistakes or the switch arounds. And then sometimes you can kind of create that awkward magic, which is kind of entertaining in its own right. Yeah, and it's just funny how like he you know, makes a joke uh, towards like the the guy holding the cue cards, like "Come on, flip it faster so I can read." 
Um, so just a fun, lighthearted moment to start out uh, this evening. Academy Honorary Awards went to Charles S. Boren and Edward G. Robinson. Uh, Boren was the leader for 38 years of the industry's enlightened labor relations and architect of its policy of non-discrimination with the respect and affection of all who work in films. And Robinson had died two months prior to the Oscar show, unfortunately. His widow, Jane Adler, accepted the award for Robinson, who achieved greatness as a player, a patron of the arts, and a dedicated citizen, in sum, a renaissance man, from his friends in the industry he loves. He had a memorable film career in such films as Little Caesar, Double Indemnity, and Key Largo. The Special Achievement Award went to L.B. Abbott and A.D. Flowers for visual effects of The Poseidon Adventure. The plot centers around a fictional SS Poseidon, an aging luxury liner, on her final voyage from New York City to Athens before it is scrapped. On New Year's Day, it is overturned by a tsunami, causing passengers and crew to be trapped inside with the help of a preacher, leading a small group to safety. So, Ben, have you seen The Poseidon Adventure? Because this is one of those weird 70 movies that I, like, grew up loving. I saw Poseidon with Kurt Russell from, what, 2005? <laughs> right? Is that... Is that... I, it, that's a remake, right? It's the same thing. He's on a cruise ship or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. It, 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 like, flips upside down, right? It crashes. Does it flip upside down? Yeah, yeah that's it flips upside down. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I saw the remake. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a remake. I don't know if I've ever even seen that, but I would honestly like totally recommend this as like a great, you know, weekend flick, a Sunday afternoon flick. You got Gene Hackman as like the reverend who's kind of leading the group of people, and it's like an insane cast of like mainly older aging Hollywood stars at this point. So you like Shelley Winters, you got Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, like some true like legends and icons and icons we've seen nominated and win Academy Awards. And uh, yeah, you don't see it come up really too much the rest of the show because it is more of a like big block blockbuster kind of like end of the world, like big kind of similar to Airplane like we talked about recently. But it is such a fun time. Obviously, we love Gene Hackman. We talked so much about him. And he just continues to pick like very interesting film roles that are bold and out there and, and such interesting characters. And it's totally worth it just to see him uh, kill it as the Reverend. Yeah, and then the uh, the remake, John, just to, you know, maybe you should watch it. It does have Kurt Russell in it. Josh Lucas, Fergie is in the remake. Uh, what? Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't seen this one if you have seen the original and, like, grew up with the original. I l- yeah, I love the original, and I feel like you just saying Fergie's in it just, like, struck me, and I may have seen that movie as well. Yeah. Because I, like, really loved this movie as a kid. It was, like, a movie that was always on TCM. My dad really liked it, so I would always watch it and be just, like, fascinated. One, at the visual effects, it's super dated, too, for the 70s, but it's, like, really cool what they do because it's mainly practical, so, like, everything's hanging upside down in the practical sets. It's really cool. It's a really yeah. well-made film, especially well-deserving of the Special Effects Achievement Award. Well, moving on to Best Film Editing, that went to Cabaret to David Bretherton. This is Bretherton's first and only Academy Award, and Cabaret is actually listed as the 30th Best Edited Film of All Time and a 2012 survey of the members of the Motion Picture Editors Guild. Uh, Godfather is nominated here as well, John. So is Beside Adventure, Deliverance. How do you feel about Cabaret winning this award? Um, 
I'm going to ask that question, I think, in a bunch of times. How do you feel about Cavari <laughs> winning this award? Come on. The Godfather is one of the best films of all time. We talked about it. Is it one of the best edited films of all time? I think you may be able to argue over that. I enjoyed Cabaret. Is it best film editing? I don't think so. I would much prefer to see Godfather over this. I mean, even Deliverance has some really interesting editing and very like stylistically 70s editing in Deliverance, which is really cool. But yeah, come on. It's got to be the Godfather. They edited this huge epic all these family members this huge story and brought it down into what really is speedy when you man when you watch the godfather it does not feel like an almost three-hour film and i think that's an impressive feat on its own but what do you think i couldn't agree more i think the amount that they had to edit and put together the just the gravity of how they're able to sequence together all the scenes it, it it's a great really great job uh by the Godfather Cabaret, I, I guess because it's quick cuts, it's the the singing and the dancing. But I don't know; it still isn't enough for me. Best cinematography went to Cabaret from Jeffrey Unsworth. This is Unsworth first of two Academy Awards out of four total nominations, and he would go on to win for Tess in 1982. That was a posthumous win for Unsworth, having died in 1978. And Unsworth is most notably for his work on Beckett from 1964, 2001 A Space Odyssey from 68, and Superman from 1978. Ben, come on. I'll read out the nominations just so we have some more clarity here. We have Travels with My Aunt, The Poseidon Adventure, Butterflies Are Free, and Seven. 1976 so no godfather for best cinematography hmm yeah, that's uh it's a lot of bullshit um <laughs> just gonna say it there right now i really don't get it um <laughs> they like what i don't understand what's going on i gordon willis like i know he hasn't he wasn't really nominated much i think maybe if at all in his career like i don't know if there was some vendetta against him in the politics of the academy but like this is like one of the best looking films. I don't even think part two won for uh, best cinematography. So it's like, what about these films is not, you know, film? Like, how, how are these not Academy Award winning movies in terms of the cinematography? It's mind blowing, especially when you consider what he's able to do with like pushing, you know, the darkness in, in the frames. I, I don't get it, John. It's not even just like the the darkness of the light, just like the whole composing of a lot of the scenes, like the beautiful, perfect framing of a lot of the scenes. I mean, you even talked about like Sonny's death and how that was like such a simple setup, but it's so dynamic and entertaining and keeps you enthralled. And it's it's bizarre. I guess you could like look at it from one point of view where we've talked about the Godfather of Godfather of kind of pushing that aspect of like light versus dark and really pushing the shadows that are like engulfing your characters. But we've seen similar things. Like, I think you could even point out the French Connection. So it's not like that is so far out of the question that we've, like, never seen it done before. We've just seen it done in, like, a very elegant, stylish way that's not really as gritty as the French Connection. It's more streamlined and and, and more clean than the, the French Connection. But, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that he's not even nominated yeah. here. I mean, that alone is the biggest crime. It should be the best cinematography hands down. But the fact that he's not even nominated, yeah. that's just it, a crime. I don't get it. I don't get it. I really don't get it. And, and again, like cabarets, just because it's the, all the music and dancing going on, like maybe that's just it. But 
don't get it. D- I guess d- they have, like it, the interesting like opening and ending of like the glass cinematography, but it's like so simple. Like yeah. the rest of the movie is really shot simply as well. Like nothing's that different or interesting or I don't know. I agree. Yeah, I don't know. Just, you, look, you look at some most of the, of the movies musical performances w- are like stationary too, right? Yeah. You know. I, I don't know. I feel like when we look at some of the other movies from like this year and compared to The Godfather, The Godfather looks so different. Yeah, and I'm not. I, it's totally not that it's 4K, like you know, upscale resolution, like what they you know they digitized it, and mastered it for you know for for our time to watch it. But the movie just looks so different compared to the other movies. The way it, it's framed, shot, lit, just completely different. And th- I think that stands out more to me than anything else when I watch the Godfather movies. Best art direction went to Cabaret. Art direction to Hans Jürgen Kaibach and Rolf Zettbauer. Set decoration by Herbert Straubel. This is Kaibach, Zettbauer, and Straubel's all first Academy Award wins. Another crazy one. I mean, the fact that Best Art Direction doesn't even have Godfather nomination, it's absurd. I mean, that is such a well-designed film. Everything feels realistic. Again, we can talk about like the nitpicks. Like, oh, the font on the top of the newspaper is actually not accurate to the 19... 19- like, shut up. Shut up. When you watch the movie, you feel like you're in the 1940s. Everything feels authentic. Everything feels yeah. real. Why is it not nominated? I would argue a movie that should be there that isn't nominated is Sleuth. Um, and we'll get to Sleuth. Like, that is, the way it's staged, the whole like setting uh, is very stylized. It's There's a lot of... like props that are purposeful to the plot itself um i i'm surprised like why it's not there and you know and then the movies that are here are not movies that are nominated for like, best picture in these above line awards it just doesn't really make sense best sound went to cabaret went to david hilliard and robert nudson this is hilliard's second consecutive oscar win after previously winning for fiddler on the roof and Nutson's first of three total, total Academy Awards as he would go on to win for The Exorcist and E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Nutson is one of 19 people to win three or more Best Sound Oscars. Best Costume Design went to Travels with My Aunt to Anthony Powell. This is Powell's first of three Academy Awards and would go on to win for Death on the Nile from 78 and Tess from 81. Costume Design for The Godfather, like... Again, you know, there's a theme here where it's not getting the awards that maybe it should, but like I feel like the costumes in and the Godfather are like really spot on. It like really helps to tell the characters and, and their background and their stories. Um, you know, Sonny with the with the wife beater and the suspenders and the dress pants, like that's such a you know, style by his look that's like so specific to that character that it helps it makes sense for the world that they're yeah. in. Yeah, we haven't seen Travels with my aunt, but I totally agree with you. Godfather's amazing, and it totally deserves. I mean, like I said, it fits perfectly. Nothing really feels off when you're watching the movie uh, in terms of like the design of their clothing. But Travels with my aunt is directed by George Cukor. He dies only eight years later. Maybe there's like a little connection. Maybe they're like give the give the guy some award for his film before he like retires, probably in the next couple of years. Yeah, but it's not like he's getting the award. No, you're right. You're right. But I don't think we'll really see that nominated for any major awards that he would even be up for. So 
yeah, just throw, totally throwing that out. Weird coincidence. George Cord name that we've heard. He's like kind of following the end of his time in Hollywood. So just just throwing that out. Okay. Moving on to best scoring adaptation and original song score went to, you guessed it, Cabaret, adapted by Ralph Burns. This is Burns' first and only Academy Award win. Best original dramatic score went to Limelight to Charlie Chaplin, Raymond Rash, and Larry Russell. So this is Chaplin, Rash's, and Russell's only competitive Academy Award wins. This was a posthumous win for Rash and Russell. Upon the film's initial release in 1952, critic reception was divided. It was heavily boycotted in the United States because of Chaplin's alleged communist sympathies and the film had failed commercially. However, the film was re-released in the United States in 72, which included its first screening in L.A. This allowed the decades-old film to be in contention for the 45th Academy Awards, where Chaplin won his only competitive Oscar. Today, the film is sometimes regarded as one of Chaplin's best and most personal works and has attained a cult following. In the case of Larry Russell, jazz wax journalist Mark Myers has written that this was a case of mistaken identity and Russell Garcia was the actual composer who should have been awarded the 72 Oscar. Uh, Larry Russell's family denies the report. So Charlie Chaplin wins his Oscar. You know, he kind of had this triumphant return a couple of years before when he received an honorary award but now he's winning a competitive award. But is that really, you know, was that, was that purposeful? Like did, did they do that for him? Because maybe that the Godfather wasn't there because of another famous thing that happened with them. Um, and to give some background on that. Uh, so when the Academy nominations were first announced for this year, uh, Nino Rota, who was the composer for the Godfather, uh, received a nomination in the music original dramatic score category but it was reported in the Hollywood trade papers that Rhoda's nomination was, was withdrawn after it came to the attention of the Academy that portions of the score for The Godfather previously had been used by Rhoda and his score for the 58 Italian film Fortunella. Uh, so the music branch of the Academy subsequently revoted, and John Addison took Rhoda's place for scoring a sleuth, um, which, again, like that's a really interesting score too, which John, John Addison you might remember him from Tom Jones and that score. So interesting uh, that that, you know, that that replaces the Godfather and Charlie Chaplin wins. So just overall thoughts on the score category for this year. Well, it's so nice, obviously to see Chaplin in here, you know, one of his like final goodbyes truly for the Oscars. And like you said, what is renowned as one of his best films of all time. That's like one of, the top films of Chaplin I still haven't seen so I'm really dying to go back and watch that eventually and enjoy the music but it's so interesting in terms of the Godfather and, and Rhoda kind of changing and being removed and it's funny I don't know if you went back and listened to the 1958 uh, Fortunella song but it is obviously it's identical basically it's just slowed down to make the Godfather theme and it's I kept thinking of in the Godfather in terms of the film that the original song, the Italian film, or the song from uh, Fortunella, it, it's almost like a song that would play at the wedding of the Godfather. Like you can just hear it when it's like sped up and it's the Godfather increasingly, it's almost polka-esque as well. Like you, I could hear this like being played at the Italian wedding of the Godfather, but yeah, it's so it's identical basically. I get why they'd have to remove it. But how do you feel? Do you think this is like another mix up of so many rules about best original dramatic score? 
it's super bizarre that this would happen uh, for the Oscars for a score category. Um, is it too much, you know, rules or digging into it? I mean, it's pretty fascinating that they even discovered that, like, after the fact, was someone tipped them off? Like, maybe there was something that happened, um, whether it's some, like, Godfather thing with Nina Rota, <laughs> you know, that they were, you know, feet to the fire. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's super bizarre that they would figure that out after. But and it's unfortunate uh, that he didn't win for that. Much like the entire production, it seemed like everything was against this movie. Yeah. Every single thing. Moving on to best song, original for the picture, went to The Morning After from The Poseidon Adventure, music and lyrics by Joel Hershorn and Al Kasha. The song was written in March 1972 by 20th Century Fox songwriters Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, who were asked to write the love theme for The Poseidon Adventure in one night. The finished product was called Why Must There Be a Morning After?, but changes by the record label resulted in the more optimistic lyric, There's Got to Be a Morning After. In the film, the song is performed by the character of Noni, played by Carol Lindley, but actually sung by the vocal double Renee Armand. It appears twice, during a warm-up rehearsal and then later during the New Year's Eve party earlier in the film, before the passengers must escape the sinking wreck. The title appears in the end credits as The Song from the Poseidon Adventure. The most unlikely Oscar nomination in the history of the Academy Awards was this year's Best Original Song nomination for Ben, which was a grade Z horror film about killer rats. The title song was sung by no other than 14-year-old child star Michael Jackson during the end credits and even for the Oscar ceremony this year. So first off the bat, insane. We have Michael <laughs> Jackson at 14 years old being nominated for Best Original Song. And it's about this movie called Ben, <laughs> which I've never heard of this until literally this this whole award show. And it blew my mind. It's literally about a killer rat who like commands an army of rats, but he's really just good friends with a little boy. And he just wants to be a good little rat guy. And the whole <laughs> world just wants to kill Ben. And it's horrific. <laughs> Sounds it's like so my sad. life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> that is so wild. It's <laughs> super wild. I mean, they Michael. There's a reason why Michael Jackson became the star that he was. I mean, it started early on. I mean, it's pretty. It's, I'm like so tempted to like put in the song for Ben instead of, but we, now we gotta <laughs> honor the song from the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light Best foreign language film went to the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie uh, to France and to Louis Bunuel. Best animated short subject went to A Christmas Carol by Richard Williams. Best live action short subject went to Norman Rockwell's World's An American Dream to Richard Barclay. Best documentary short subject went to This Tiny World from Charles Hunod von der Linden and Martina Hunod von der Linden. Best documentary feature went to Marjo to Sarah Kernakin and Howard Smith. 
best screenplay based on material from another medium went to The Godfather from Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo based on the novel by Mario Puzo. This is Coppola's second nomination and his second Oscar as he previously won Best Original Screenplay for Patton. And this is Puzo's first nomination and Academy Award win. The film is based on Mario Puzo's The Godfather, which remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 67 weeks and sold over 9 million copies in two years. Published in 1969, it became the best-selling published work in history for several years. Paramount's vice president of production, Peter Bart, believed the work was, quote, much beyond a mafia story, unquote, and offered Puzo a $12,500 option for the work with an option of 80000 if the finished work were to be made into a film. Despite Puzo's agent telling him to, to turn down the offer, Puzo was desperate for money and accepted the deal. Paramount's Robert Evans relates that when they met in early 1968, he had offered Puzo the deal after the author confined in him that he urgently needed $10,000 to pay off gambling debts. So, I mean, we talked a lot about The Godfather, and obviously we hit on all the characters, all the amazing writing, is there anything else that we need to hit on? I mean, did we praise Mario Puzo enough for this? Well, I think that's like the interesting thing. And I think we did a good job like not referencing the Godfather novel, which I think a lot of, you know, some crit- critics will like go back to the book and read it and be like, oh, well, in the book it included this plot line. And, you know, like this is how it's different. And it's like, but then are you judging, like, what are you judging then? I guess you can judge the screenplay based on that and how it was adapted. I think it's a great adaptation. I mean, from what I have heard of what the book's about, it sounds like there's so much convoluted crap in it too that they were able to condense and make it into this like movie that and you know, it's not just a mom movie like we said, it's a family movie in many ways and they do a really good job and you know, it, you know, is it Coppola, is it Puzo? It's you know, it definitely feels like a combination of both. Um so it's a it's a great screenplay. It might be one of the best screenplays ever written it's you know especially when you consider how powerful it is and the story and the the acting we get out of it like maybe like you know you don't get good acting as good as that if you don't have such a strong script um so they go hand in hand but what do you think uh, of the script itself yeah i think that's a great way to look at it and i think it really helped looking at the godfather notebook the notebook that you know coppola kept with him and it was the book you know he wasn't really referencing this script 90% of the time while he was making this film. So it wasn't so important to see the original text and have that kind of essence throughout the film. And I think even just if this was just based on a script, you wouldn't have that, you know, like layers of layers of layers. And I think it's what makes this film feel so lived in and so real. And you see so many different characters throughout this movie. And some of them, you've no idea their names. You don't know like who they are in the family. You just know they're related and they're having a good time at the wedding or they're in the background of other, some other meeting or dinner, but they all feel alive and lived in. And I think it's just a good kind of like, you know, handheld, relationship that the film had with this book and it was able to make a script that was not only honoring like the heart and essence of it but it was able to elevate it in a way that I I haven't read the entire book but it seemed for a lot of people that it just it took the the godfather which for a lot of people was a little on its nose it wasn't as you know it wasn't I will say it's very detailed from what I've read and the kind of reviews overall in the book but it wasn't as 
nuanced, I will say, as the Godfather is, where you like truly can see for yourself this character evolve instead of really being told about this world. I think we are it's more of an experience than it is just an overall, you know, you're a god looking down on this family. But I mean, it's such an an honorable thing and I don't think it's crazy to say that this is one of the best adapted scripts of all time best scripts I feel like you got to separate the two adaptation and original script but I don't think it's crazy at all to say this is one of the best adaptations for film of all time moving on to best screenplay based on factual material or material not previously produced or published going to the candidate to Jeremy Larner this is the first Oscar nomination and win for Larner. Best Supporting Actress went to Eileen Heckart for Butterflies Are Free as Mrs. Baker. This is Heckart's first and only Academy Award win, but she was nominated in 1957 for The Bad Seed. Heckart also performed on television, one of her most notable roles being that of Flo, the aunt of Mary Richards on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Heckert's heart, however, remained in the theater. She once said, quote, you do television to make money so you can afford to act in the theater. The theater is where I started and it's what I believe in, end quote. In addition to her Oscar, Heckart was the recipient of two Emmy Awards and a Tony Award for her career excellence. Best Supporting Actor went to Joel Gray for Cabaret as the MC. This is Gray's first and only Academy Award. Joel Gray is an American actor, singer, and dancer who is best known for his riveting performance as the depraved and worldly master of ceremonies in the Candor and Ed musical Cabaret in both the 66 stage version and the 1972 film adaptation. I am, you know, maybe it's a little a hint of it. I'm not a big fan of Cabaret. This performance, though, is pretty wild. It's pretty... uh. Like it's so like outside of what's going on with the movie. It's so it's just in your face. Like I'm the MC of this wacky and wild cabaret show, and it's like very fun. But does that do the same service to the film as Pacino does, as Duvall does, as James Caan does for The Godfather? Absolutely not. And then even the nomination of Pacino and supporting actor. Maybe Brando should have been supporting actor, and he should have been actor. Or, you know, I don't know, but uh, it's pretty weird. It's a pretty weird year, and, re- and for three people to be nominated for The Godfather and none of them win, um, oh, maybe it just goes to show you shouldn't have multiple nominees in the same category. Uh, it doesn't really work in your favor. Definitely splits the vote. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. I just think the Al Pacino move is 1,000% intentional in order for Brando to kind of like take the front and center of you yeah. know, being the star, the guy that everyone's talking about. But no, he is the lead actor of that movie. He yeah. should 1,000% be for best actor. There's no reason for him to be best supporting actor. I mean, he literally is the movie. Like yeah. Brando, the Godfather, very important. But he is a supporting character that fuels the decisions of our lead character. That's just, it's just ridiculous. That's something we like really don't see very often, right? Like it's not very often that because you're the ones who are putting up the film as these kind of different categories, like you, the creator, the producer, probably along with the director, if I'm remembering correctly, you should be the ones kind of selecting this. So this was intentionally done in order to kind of push Brando forward and Al Pacino as maybe he could possibly pull up and behind and, 
if really people love the movie as much as they did at the time, maybe you could pull it from behind and kind of beat Joel Gray. And I also watched Cabaret for the first time. Well, you didn't watch it for the first time, but I watched it for the first time. And Joel Gray's fun. Like, it is a very fun, enthusiastic performance. And maybe I'm just getting bogged down with just how much, you know, representation, how many, like, bright, loud voices we see in a day where it just doesn't really... It just doesn't really make this character feel that like unique and authentic. But I guess for 1972, it really was. And it was ahead of the time to like showcase someone like this who's who's kind of this like mix of of uh, almost like a caricature of what we've seen nowadays when we see people that are like in these kind of cabaret shows or people that are in drag or or so on. You know, there's so many different creators that I think we see now that we're just this was probably very unique for the time, especially for people that never even been to a cabaret show. Um, at the time, yeah, but I I, t- I totally agree with you. I mean, I even think from the movie itself, Cabaret, that Michael York as is really the main supporting actor in that film. It's just kind of odd that they nominated Joel Gray. I guess they knew like he's the beginning of the movie, he's the end of the movie, he's the face that you recognize, yeah. other than you know Liza. So I understand. I mean, it is it is very bright and it's colorful, and I love that just for that. But come on. We have what some people say are like some of the three greatest actors of all time <laughs> for one of the best movies of all time for The Godfather. It's just insane. Yeah, and but yeah, there's no way win. I can. Yeah, none of them win, and you're right. They probably split the vote. But I mean, I gotta talk about because we'll talk about Deliverance more. <laughs> but come on, Burt Reynolds in Deliverance is amazing, and we I talk so much about The Godfather and its like impact on history, and I think Cabaret's definitely had a huge impact on history and film culture and culture in general, but like, come on. Deliverance made Burnt Reynolds the sex icon that he is. <laughs> I think you could argue over certain films, but like, that man shirtless wearing that like, swimming vest thing he's got on, like, just is a sexy motherfucker. Like it, you can't not look away when you see Burt Reynolds in Deliverance. Yeah, there's um, there's some interesting things about sex in that movie. All right, uh, <laughs> man, talk about Burt. Yeah, God damn it. I, 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 I am surprised that like he wasn't nominated for um, for that movie. Um, same with Michael York, but I think one of the other interesting things is Pacino didn't even show up. And there's rumors he didn't show up because he's he was pissed about not being nominated for best actor. Uh, I you know heard an interview later in life. He was like, no, I was just you know caught up in doing other things and you know being the art you know the actor and artist that I am. Just I don't know. I don't know what the truth is behind it, but yeah, he should have won. Like it should have been a Godfather actor winning for supporting actor, and not Joel Gray. And you know Joel Gray still did a fine job though. So is what it is. You didn't talk too much about how sexy Burt Reynolds is. I mean, oh, he's okay. Yeah. He's sexy, but is that great acting? No, but I, I honestly think it's a really interesting performance. I think he's coming into his own as an actor. I think that it is a very iconic look performance in film in general. I'm just saying it's crazy that he wasn't even nominated at this point in time. I think like he kind of though drops off it after like his like big scenes in the movie, which are like really in the first part of the movie. He like kind of drops yeah, off definitely. after best supporting. Yeah, I know. But maybe, maybe that's why. I don't know, John. I don't know. Best actress went to Liza Minnelli for Cabaret as Sally Bowles. 
This is Manelli's second nomination, but only Oscar win, as she was nominated in 1974, The Sterile Cuckoo. Manelli was the daughter of film director Vincent Manelli and iconic entertainer Judy Garland. Initially, she set her sights on career as an ice skater, but in 1963, she won a supporting role in the off-Broadway revival of the 1941 musical Best Foot Forward. Liza turned to Broadway at age 19 and in 1965 became the youngest woman to ever win a leading actress Tony Award for Flora the Red Menace. Manelli is an EGOT winner and even a Knight of the French Legion of Honor. This is the third instance of a movie winning Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor. In total, 40 films have won two or more Academy Awards in the acting categories. So Ben, what did you think of Liza Minnelli in Cabaret? Uh, it's still just, I, I'm sorry. I just, it's not enough. Like, I just, I don't like the movie. She comes off. I like, is it, you know, is the appeal that she's this like lost young girl, you know, young in the sense that she's still over 18, but she's young and she's trying to like find herself and she's learning these hard lessons while trying to make it as cabaret. Like I just it feels just not enough for me, and I don't think it's that again not that great of a performance. I thought I think she's whiny at times. Um, it's just it's very bizarre to me. I, but maybe there's there's not another actress I can think of though that could like take that place right now. It's a very kind of like weak year maybe for lead actresses. There's no one from The Godfather or any of the other Best Picture nominees or, uh, that we see and talk about a lot of it is very male driven which says more about the time that they're in and the fact that again like this character is winning for best actress again a young girl all about it's really just about sex with her uh and she's the daughter of a famous director and uh, and judy garland you know very you know who had her own issues being a young girl in the industry so it's very you know it's weird but what, what do you think john well, I think it's a very unique performance. I think it's something that like kind of captures the essence of like, you know, this rising late 60s to now the 70s of this kind of new counterculture that we have where we're, I think it started really in terms of best pictures with Midnight Cowboy where, you know, we can talk about sex. We can be open about sex. I think if we go beyond just her as best actress, I mean, she has a relationship with someone who's like bisexual. Michael York's character, Brian Roberts in the film is just straight up bisexual, just flat out says it in a very, very well, well-written line. But, uh, Eliza Minnelli, I think she sells this character really well and she's like super adorable and charming. I do agree with you in a lot of senses where I just feel like her character is underwritten. I don't think that the character itself fully goes the distance of, of really making it there, especially for how many kind of awards the film takes home. I wish we got like a little bit more of her relationship. You know, if you know the film, they very much separate. And I think you just kind of end the film coming back to the cabaret. We end it like we start it. But I just, I liked her performance a lot. And I don't know if I look at The Godfather, if anything really kind of stacks up because the women just don't get enough of a prominent role really to kind of stand out. But Cicely Tyson in Sounder, which was another Best Picture nominee this year, was really incredible. She's basically the like co-lead along with the the son in the film, 
And I was really impressed by her work. She would later on win an honorary award in 2018. So it's good that she finally won her Oscar uh, close to the, the end of her life. But she's a really powerful performance. It's a performance all about family. She just plays a mother. And, and I think it was pretty significant for black Americans at the time to see this film that wasn't, you know, a black exploitation film. It wasn't like an action crime tr- drama or drug thriller. It was about a family and a family trying to stay together to like, you know, farm the land and be just strong, good people. And she plays that character so well. She has to do a lot that's very challenging in the film in terms of, you know, losing her husband, worrying about her son, you know, worrying about even making ends meet with the farm. So Sounder, whether you uh, love it or not, Ben, which we can talk more when we get to the Best Picture nominees, I just check it out for Cicely Tyson's performance. I think it's worth the watch just for that. Moving on to Best Actor, went to Marlon Brando for The Godfather as Vito Corleone. So there's a lot uh, to break down here. Um <laughs> So let's give some context. An additional Academy Award controversy erupted uh, on the night of the 1972 Oscar ceremony. Best Actor recipient Marlon Brando was not in attendance. And when his name was announced, Sashi Littlefeather, a traditionally dressed Native American actress born Maria Cruz, came up to the podium but brushed aside the statuette being offered by presenters Roger Moore and Liv Ullman. In a brief speech excerpted from a lengthy statement by Brando, Littlefeather stated that the primary reason Brando was declining the award was because of the treatment of American Indians in film and television. Although Brando previously had accepted a Best Actor award for his role in On the Waterfront, he never accepted the Oscar for The Godfather and rarely talked about it in subsequent years. While he didn't accept the award, he's still technically a two-time Oscar winner. Brando wouldn't win another Oscar, but was nominated for Best Actor for Last Tango in Paris in 73, so the following year, and Best Supporting Actor for a Dry White Season in 1989. Uh, there's a lot of angles to attack this, John. Uh, first, let's start. Let's just start with the Brando piece of this and just the fact that he won, he's a two-time Oscar winner. That either way, any way we want to put it, uh, he's won two Oscars, and that's a big deal. Not many actors, actresses are winning two or more Oscars. So his legacy was already cemented. This just further solidifies it for us. Um, and in terms of like talking about the Oscars, I've said to you a couple of times, uh, there's a really great interview uh, from the Dick Cavett show uh, a couple years later where he does talk about the moment and what he ultimately decides to do and why he decides to do what he did. And he's very spot on. You know, you can say he's woke. You know, I'd say he's ahead of his time in terms of thinking and what actors should, you know, sometimes be presenting. And that's an unfair treatment within the workplace. Talking about re- representation and how Hollywood has exploited many minorities for pretty much the entire, incept, you know, entire time the industry has been around which is 50 years plus at this time um, that he's talking about it. So he's making really good points. And then his actions are bringing Sashi Littlefeather on stage. Uh, John, is there any, anything you want to add before uh, we jump into the Sashi Littlefeather part of this? Anything about Brando and the performance and the Godfather? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Brando saw George C. Scott, saw what he did for his Oscar, and just said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, beat that guy once again. I'm gonna <laughs> take one more step and send someone in my replacement. Not even just decline it, but send someone there to even accept the award at the same time." But no, I bring that up because I read a huge chunk of The Contender, which is a book all about Brando and his career, his life outside of film. And I think he's very similar to George C. Scott in a lot of ways. And maybe politically not similar, maybe on complete opposite directions politically, but in terms of being actors who are obsessed with the craft, who, you know, live to find that character and they like want to dive so deep into it, they don't even know who they are anymore. George C. Scott was patent for like two years trying to make that movie. And Brando was was Don Vito. He was the Don and he lived and embraced that character so much that he enjoyed being a kid again. You know, he like enjoyed going into films and losing himself in a way where he would lose touch of reality. And I think that affected his personal life a lot. You know, Brando also had three sons, much like the Godfather himself. And there was, there was a lot of connections to him and, and George C. Scott from what I read in terms of just the way they l- looked at the profession. It was like a form of escape and they weren't about the glitz and glamour. They did this basically because that was what, you know, filled that heart, that hole in their heart. Excuse me. So completely outside of it, just the performance. It's an incredible performance. I mean, it's one of the most iconic film performances of all time. He has just made this character, a character that is on the same level as, you know, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. Like, <laughs> we all know the Don. And it's it's crazy because you can compare him to those two comedic, you know, childlike characters. And they are just as like relevant and prominent in today's culture. So he is he made a huge impact on not just film world, but in, in the entire world. But, yeah, let's transition. I want to hear your thoughts of Little Feather and, and the whole idea of just declining an award as well as you know talking and sending someone else for you yeah um i i loved it it's very punk rock you know i i think it's (laughs) as much as i love the academies i think this is a great i it's a great critique of it too just to say like you know i'm not gonna accept it and it's not really i'm not gonna accept it because of the idea of awards but the idea of the industry as a whole and he's making a a huge statement he's taking his platform and using it to another level i mean if we want to go to a further way of talking and and different subject matters you can go to when leo leonardo dicaprio won and his speech you know it's his big moment everyone's been waiting you know two decades for leo to win an oscar he finally does and he's for a minute he's like thank you you know this is a, a great moment and then for the rest of his speech he talks about climate change and, and how that impacted the movie and he used his platform to talk about something in that was appropriate and I think that there's such a reluctance by actors and, and actresses to do it I wish sometimes they were more political today because it would go viral and it would it would give it, it would bring up stuff that everyone needs to hear and so something like this I you know for its time yeah people need to hear it clearly by the reactions of people which we'll get to in a second so Brando doing it totally okay with it putting you know such a little feather up there I mean it's a it's a hard hard place to be um there's a lot of backstory you know I've heard that the Oscars that they knew that that Brando was going to decline and do something like this that the speech which they didn't I don't think was really reported on 
and the academy actually let Sashi and Littlefeather record her like taping it but this is like within the last few years they did it so this is 50 years later they decided to give her a moment to read the entire speech um so they knew she was going to do it they told her well you only have a minute to say it so she's kind of rushed she's probably trying to get as much as she can out because she knows that she's on a time crunch and then you know obviously there's a lot of booing as she's talking about there's a lot you know it's a heavy position to be in um and she handled it pretty pretty well i know there's a lot of other side controversies about her about her not actually being native american but if you're trying to prove a point about something like i don't know where it gets lost uh in that translation yeah that is something that i think we need to just like put aside entirely because it just it complicates things so much the fact that she was born maria cruz and she's from hispanic descent I like understand why people look at it and say like it's fraudulent. Like you're gonna you're gonna make a press move like this or a push like this, and do something so political as this, and you can't even get someone who's actually native from a native land or tribe, you know, locally or maybe who's like interacted with Hollywood in some way. That is bizarre in its own way. That that could probably be its own podcast miniseries about her whole life, her involvement, why she got into it, you know. So I think we just need to put that all aside and just refer to it as Sasheen Littlefeather and, you know, inviting someone who's who's supposed to be native and and to speak for Brando. And I think you can even look at that now and break that down even more. And I'm so glad you brought up Leo because Leo is is a a really interesting example because, you know, he got to, you know, what is the classic saying like uh, bake the cake and eat it too or something and eat it too i forget what it is but uh you know what i'm talking about i, I yeah uh, to have your cake and eat it too is that, i don't know have your cake and eat it too thank you i said bake your cake and eat it too i mean that's also an yeah. honor in itself so leo got to do that where he got to actually go up there accept his award but then transition his speech onto something that is political it is hotly debated amongst many many people everywhere really but I think where it's different is that you can do that. You know, you can talk about such a politically wide issue as global warming because it's not related to race. It's the human race. It's such a global, bigger issue. And now I think you take an even tighter, more controversial political issue, which is race and your relationship to Native Americans, how we've treated them, how we've represented them in American film, which I think we can all agree is extremely stereotypical, racist, you know, terrible, terrible things have been done to like how we represent the Native people and how we've treated the Native people in, in the United States of America, like awful, awful things. And it's not like we can like go out of our way and, and kind of fix things and, and do things to like make that act like it never happened but i think brando was so engrossed in culture and he was so engrossed in politics that he would obsess over these things and leading up to the oscars there was a lot of like crime against native americans i'll say some a really public uh beating and murder much like you would see in modern times like during the pandemic where it caused rallies of people to kind of support uh native americans in the country and it's just so muddy because what he was trying to do is send a message and it is badass. Like you said, it is kind of metal. I think you could look at it as, you know, what if he did go out there? What if he did accept the award and he had little feather there, 
But then it's like she becomes like a sidekick where it's like you you want to have your cake and eat it too, but it doesn't work in this issue because you're not fully there to represent the culture of Native Americans. Like, yes, he could have gone up there and just talked about it, but people would have laughed at him and they would have made fun of this. I don't think he would have had people like call him up like Jackal Nicholson called him up after the Academy Awards and said, Brando, like that was amazing what you did. Like that was impressive that you were able to do something like that. And it is, it is putting a middle finger up to Hollywood in a way that it's hard not to like smile and be like, that was Brando. Like that dude didn't care. He did his thing his own way and he somehow succeeded and succeeded better than most actors in Hollywood. So now breaking it down to the way he did it, he's not there. He's not even accepting me ward himself. He's sending this person and let's say she's like very authentic native and she has that authentic experience that she can kind of represent this culture. It's bold to do what he did. And it's interesting. I think the argument really comes down to like, did this have an effect? Did this hurt native American storytelling or did it help their, their kind of struggle? Did it help make light of it? And I don't even know if we can really judge for ourselves. Again, that is its own podcast in a way where you would need to study, you know, film from Native Americans in this country and how that has evolved, how we've gotten to to where we can see a Hulu show that is completely Native Americans who run it. And I'm, I'm blanking on the name of that show, unfortunately, right now. But it's Reservoir Dogs. Oh, Reservation Dogs. just came to me. Reservation Dogs, yeah. thank you. Because I always got it mixed up. I literally thought they were making a show about Reservation Dogs like crazy. Uh, Reservoir Dog. <laughs> I, I just mixed it up. Dyslexia, baby. But it is interesting because it's just her up there. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying to just send someone out there to like represent this nation and do that. But I'm going to ask you, Ben. I mean, we've seen s- stuff evolve. We've seen we have more voices from Native Americans. But I don't think it's nearly enough to say that this was a huge success and it worked, really. No, it's definitely not a huge success considering still how, you know, it, it was only so recently that people were like, oh, no, maybe for Halloween I shouldn't dress up as a Native American chief or I shouldn't dress up as Pocahontas. Like, it took forever. So it, it really didn't have a huge effect besides that. And the unfortunate effect is just, like, the the viral moment that it caused, which it just, I guess society just wasn't ready, unfortunately, which is, like, shitty to have to, like, say that. And like we weren't ready to like talk about it and um it's it did not have the impact that that Brando was trying to go for but you could also say that 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 was the the pebble that started the rock slide in a way or you know added to it as you know maybe like it was starting to crumble before that um so the other fallout and aspect of this that I just want to touch on is people's reactions to it uh, most notably there's a big story about john wayne wanting to rush the stage to i don't know what to do to sashi little feather there's really no way to actually prove that this happened but supposedly he was held backstage from trying to rush the stage and uh essentially attack her that is according to the contender book as well they said six security men had to hold him back in order for not they don't directly say assaulting. They just say confronting and basically kind of implying that he would have either yelled at her or like shamed her. I don't know if it would have gotten abusive. I don't. That's uh, again. Go to the John Wayne podcast if you want to yeah. really get into that. 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what he would have done, but there's you know there's definitely a lot of vile stuff that was happening in the room when it happened, and then there's, and I think we need to say this now. Before, you know, it's, it was more of a best picture when he presents it, but Clint Eastwood when he was presenting for best picture. So again, this is the guy who started off the ceremony. It was like a big lighthearted moment. Well, he's coming back to present the award for best picture. And he makes the remark. I don't know if I should present this award on behalf of all the Cowboys shot and all the John Ford Westerns over the years, which not the best joke to make, at least I think. And there's a lot of people today too who feel like that's like it's really bad what he said i mean we we do know that clint eastwood is a you know conservative guy he has some right-wing views you know some of the later movies he makes kind of reflects that um but to make that joke after that moment does doesn't feel necessarily right I think he was definitely not trying to be offensive in this moment. It's interesting. I think we were like almost having a debate before this of watching his reaction. And yeah, definitely in light now, I don't think you would see someone really making that joke because it is about an entire culture that they were kind of trying to represent and talk about. But I think at the time he was trying, probably trying to like cut through and just make a joke out of it. I think you just see that very often in award shows when some issue happens, something funny happens, even something before you're going to reference it, you know, like cocaine bear was at the Oscars. You're going to like the next person on maybe like, Oh, like watch out for cocaine bear, you know, make some stupid reference to it. And, but at the same time, he does have some, some crazy political takes and has done some wild stuff with chairs and the dude's wild. So you never know. That could have been like an actual jab. And I think there is kind of like some good some good uh, evidence that you could probably say is that he was pissed alongside uh, John Wayne, you know. And I think a lot of the nation was pissed. I think that was pretty represented. It seemed very divisive and, and split between many, many people. Yeah, it uh, certainly created a moment. And, and now we look back on it and it's pretty wild you know to that even happened and honestly that it hasn't happened since that there hasn't been more people to decline the award but also you know there's a one uh character would would say uh, greed is good <laughs> so <laughs> the the really the craziest thing too that wraps up our story in 2023 and i don't know if you'd say wrap up really but in february 2023 a letter was sent uh, from Little Feather's sister, Trudy Orlandi, which was asking the Academy to remove the tribute from its museum gallery. And as of March 7th, 2023, she has not received a reply. So some true, just familiar drama and the whole debate of this and whether she's truly native, I think is just so beyond what we even talk about here at worthy you know well i think we can fully say that brando is worthy of best actor this year yeah yeah i you know just to comment a little bit too about the academy not getting back to her sister it's sort of like the academy is capitalizing on the moment for themselves and they're able to say look at this oscar moment it's like well it's not you know i get it that's an it's a moment i have about the oscars so sure it's an oscar moment but it's totally for something else and that that the story of what it's about is what it should be not the story about what happened so maybe that's what her sister was 
trying to protest. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely, Brando should have won. But it's a very good year um, in terms of the acting category. Uh, I just want to, again, put promote Sleuth a little bit. Uh, Michael Caine and Lawrence Olivier were, were great together on screen. And obviously, the two of the best. I mean, Lawrence Olivier, just like a fucking master. And then Michael Caine, who... Dev, you know, not far off from it, and it's a uh, all. At, it's uh, for those who don't know Sleuth, it's uh, very like Samuel Beckett esque in terms of the structure of the play. It's like waiting for Godot End Game, not Avengers End Game, John, different End Game. Um, and we'll talk about Joseph Mankiewicz who directed the movie when we get to Best Director, but just a very well acted film. So, and it, and they both are the lead of the movie, so it's kind of cool they're both there. I think it would have been interesting if then Pacino and Brando were in this category, then only one other movie got the last uh, spot for best actor. So maybe like that played with it a little bit. I don't know. I really don't think so, but definitely interesting that that could have happened. Best director went to Bob Fosse for Cabaret. This is Fosse's first Oscar nomination and win, but he would later be nominated in 1975 for Lenny and would be nominated for Best Director again in 1980 for All That Jazz. Bob Fosse is an American dancer, choreographer, and director who revolutionized musicals with his distinct style of dance, including his frequent use of props, signature moves, and provocative steps, and was well known for eschewing light comedic storylines for darker and more introspective plots. He is the only person ever to have won Oscar, Emmy, and Tony Awards in the same year of 1973. And the only Best Director Award of the 1970s that didn't correspond with this year's Best Picture winner. Yeah, so pretty, again, like, kind of wild that Bob Fosse was winning for, you know, Cabaret and not Coppola for Godfather. I you know he wins for screenplay but man the direction in the god like none of it would have happened without coppola's direction and getting it all to work dealing with everything that you know it it's pretty wild it's pretty wild i don't know why i don't know why it didn't win as many awards as it did and it was nominated for a bunch so it's not like it wasn't nominated but to not walk away with director seems fishy and i know coppola gets his director due for part two uh for godfather but still pretty wild it just doesn't make any sense again like something is against this movie it's amazing that we even get to honor it this year but something's against it there's there's enemies afoot you can feel it (laughs) yeah it's it's really bizarre um I don't know, but again, like then they get their due and have a part two, and uh, you could argue that maybe that's a better directing job. But we'll get there when we get there. Um, but I did want to circle back to our boy Joseph Mankiewicz uh, getting a nomination for Sleuth here. Um, I'm bringing up Sleuth a lot just because I I watched it earlier today, but also because it's just like it's really cool how it ties back to so much Hollywood history with Olivier. You know, we talk about him with Hamlet. Uh, then Mankiewicz, who's directing it, he directed All About Eve. His brother is Herman Mankiewicz, who did Citizen Kane. You know, we all know the story about the Mankiewiczes and what they contributed to society. Um, so just you know, his last movie being this movie, Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier, and he's getting the nomination here. It just kind of shows that the Oscars will 
honor you when they should. And it's a big deal to have Mankiewicz there. A former Oregon lumberjack who started considerably less than a fistful of dollars, Dirty Harry himself, Mr. Clint Eastwood. Wow. I don't know if I should present this award on behalf of all the cowboys shot in all the John Ford Westerns over the years. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I've seen all five nominated pictures, as I'm sure most of you have. They were all so excellent and so different. I'd have a hard time choosing without one without feeling I'd been unfair to the others. And so it occurred to me that as different as they seem, Go ahead, flip the card, man. I'm still here. <laughs> they, they all have something in common. They're all concerned with the human dilemma and our confrontation with the fates. Human beings engulfed in a lunatic dictatorship. Men brutalized by their fellow men in a hostile river. Fam families ripping up their old roots and hoping to plant new ones. And quite different families, too, who seek to prove that morality can exist within immorality. And finally, a mother, a father, three children, and a dog who ask only to live in the dignity of which all life is entitled. These are diverse and distinguished pictures, and they are Cabaret and ABC Pictures Production, Allied Artists, Sid Fuhr, Producer. Deliverance, Warner Brothers, produced by John Borman. The Immigrants, a Svensk film industry production, Warner Brothers, Bengt Forslund, producer. The Godfather, an Albert S. Ruddy production, Paramount, Albert S. Ruddy, producer. Sounder, a Radnitz Mattel Productions, 20th Century Fox, Robert B. Radnitz, producer. And the winner... The Godfather. This is Ruddy's first Oscar nomination and win, but he would later win another Best Picture award over 30 years later in 2005 for Million Dollar Baby, which was with John Clint Eastwood. Of course. It's the reunion the re we've all been waiting for. I know, but just <laughs> the fact that, like, that Ruddy's getting an award, like, I still, it's still like funny that Eastwood and Ruddy are then going to team up like over 30 years later and they're going to produce a Best Picture winner and Eastwood is giving Ruddy the award. It, that That's just like very funny and odd that they do that. But um, going back to this, after a short stint at Warner Brothers, brought about by a chance meeting with studio chief Jack L. Warner, uh, Albert Ruddy uh, moved on to become a program trainer trainee at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Returning to entertainment, though, Ruddy was a television writer at Universal Studios, but left when Marlon Brando Sr., father of the legendary actor, hired him to produce Wild Seed in 65. Al Ruddy was 35 when he produced his first film and made The Godfather only six years later. Um, pretty wild stuff. We do, and we didn't use the offer as like, any basis for our analysis, but we kind of got this like cool story about like the life of like Albert Ruddy during The Godfather time and like from his perspective and it seems like he was like kind of cool and involved and like Ruddy was like really helping to keep this movie afloat yeah I think if you really love The Godfather if you love us talking about it and you really want to know more 
about all the insides, the whole production, everything that really kind of led up to the movie itself, watch the offer on Paramount. Plus, it is so good. It gives you so much awesome behind the scenes. From what I've read, most of it is is pretty accurate. Obviously, we're not having direct dialogue, and we don't know exactly what everyone said in the room at the exact time, ex- the exact same time. But it is great, so awesome, and so amazing. It is so beautiful and like serendipitous that thirty years later they would come back. You know, you would kill to be a fly on the wall in Al Ruddy's office when he like met with Clint Eastwood. You know, if they talked about it, if they maybe were friends, maybe they talked about it over the years and yeah. all the crazy shenanigans that came out of the 70s, you know? Maybe, uh, you know, Ruddy was like, hey, Clint, I got this uh, boxing movie, a million dollar baby, <laughs> like right after he did. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows how that actually happened? Um, but yeah, so, but before we get into our stats and figures on The Godfather, there's one more aspect about this ceremony that I just want to bring up. And that was how the ceremony ended. So we talked about John Wayne before about how his supposed trying to rush the stage, but he did eventually take the stage at the end to have everybody sing along to you ought to be in pictures. So everybody who won an Oscar took the stage and they sang, and even the presenters too, they sang with John Wayne, you ought to be in pictures. And it's very interesting that that, that moment would happen after the Sushi and Little Feather incident um we were trying to talk about before like how like was this planned was it not planned it definitely had to have been planned by the you know the television producers that they were going to sing the song it just happenstance that 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 moment happens (laughs) and it's pretty odd to then pair it up so uh, it's a very weird moment um but it's kind of fun too to have everybody on stage you know sing along and be like the movies are great you ought to be in the movies with us yeah, absolutely. I definitely seen some people kind of play into the whole drama of playing up that maybe this was a way to like kind of get back at Brando saying like, Hey, you're not a part of the movies. You'll never be one of us, even though you want best actor. But that seems so far fetched and just playing into the narrative of drama and, and, and wanting the whole thing to be about this big drama of the night. But no, like always, the Oscars are a celebration of the movies. They want to like keep churning, keep that butter, you know, popping and keep getting people to go to the movies and love their stars and, and really honor collectively as we always do the, the best movies of the year and kind of like pick, figuring out what kind of achieved what in what departments that's, you know, always up to us, Ben and I to debate what's worthy in our lovely, worthy audience. But I think it's time to talk about some stats, baby. All right. So the Godfather has a 98% of Rotten Tomatoes of an average rating of a 9.3. The tops critics percentage is a 95 with an average top critic rating of 9.1. Audience score is a 98 with an average of 4.76 out of 5. IMDb gives it a 9.1. Uh, Metacritic gives it a 100. And it won three Oscars out of 10 nominations. So I like to use that IMDb, IMDb number a lot when we talk about movies, uh, especially the Best Picture winners. The previous highest one was Casablanca with an 8.5 and this is a 9.1 so pretty pretty big stuff for you know this movie in terms of its rating and how people feel about it john how do you rate and feel about the godfather you know we started this whole podcast 
Is this a perfect movie? Is this the best movie of all time? Not for me. No, it's not the best movie of all time. But it is certainly, certainly a beautiful film. I gave it a 98 because it is gosh dang amazing. You know, there's not much I would really change about this movie. We gave our little our little things about maybe how we would change the story. But overall, when you watch this movie, there's like nothing that you're like, God, this shouldn't be in here. This is not right. The story just works and it feels so real. And you just like can't wait for the next scene either because you love it or you just can't wait to see what happens in the storyline. And even if you like watch this film, wait a couple of years later and you come back to it, you're still going to be surprised. There's going to be a shot or a reaction, a sort of kind of look of a character that you'll forget about, you know, a connection, like you mentioned, Enzo, the baker, coming into the hospital, you know, you're like, oh, that's the Enzo they mentioned earlier, you know, you're picking up on these connections that you would have never really found, and that is just a very deep and compelling story that is filled with nuance, and that's why it continues to be talked about to this day, and it's why people continue to to analyze it and look at it and study why a lot of people think it's the best movie of all time. I echo pretty much exactly what you're saying. I gave the movie a 99. Originally, though, John, I had, when I first rated all the movies, I had this movie at a 100. And this was a couple years ago, so a couple watches ago. It was at a different time when I was watching it, and it's a great movie. It's pretty much nearly perfect. I think I take away the point mostly because of part two because of how i feel about part two and how where i think the story goes um i think to bring it back to part one uh i love the story i love the way it goes and i just think that it gets bigger and grander and that's why i like it more as it gets further along and there's nothing wrong with this movie at all it's pretty much perfect there's just like a i don't like the k adams part of it still um, the use of time, I think, is its biggest issue compared to part two when it does a little bit better with time and kind of representing the passing of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make a direct comparison between them, but I guess just because they relate so much to each other that that rating is influenced, that, it, that I always have to pick one over the other. And even though I love both and both are great, it's like, but which one is like, sort of the better one to tell the story because i think that that is a fair way to look at it like how to tell the story and, and godfather tells it pretty much you know perfectly i just think some of the time aspects maybe just change that 100 to a 99 just like this time that's how i'm feeling about it so um i mean i changed midnight cowboy originally i thought it was a 99 they're like no this is a perfect movie so i guess there's a little bit of that swap there but we'll see what happens in later movies uh in talking about it so this movie's pretty damn great a 99 and a 98 rating for both of us i mean when's the last time we ever gave a movie like that a high maybe we're, we have to go back to the apartment bridge on the river Kwai. We for gave, me it's I, yeah, yeah what were you for gonna me say? it's the apartment yeah and and i that's why i'm curious like when you have a hundred and i now have a hundred and you look at 1969's Mid- Midnight Cowboy as 100, does that mean you like Midnight Cowboy better than The Godfather? Yeah, does that yeah. mean... 100%. Okay. I, I also agree. I think The Apartment, I stand by that, and I do think The Apartment is a perfect movie. 
and I like it better than The Godfather. It feels like weird and scary to say that out loud, but it's true, right? Like it is. Yeah. I love The Godfather so much, and it's definitely one of the best mafia films of all time. I think it's, it's totally easy to argue that it's one of the best films, uh, in, like in your own experience and of all time. I think there's totally an argument to like kind of have and debate there, but. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you specifically about Midnight Cowboy and that 100. Well, all right, let me ask you this question then, because I think there's a lot of categories that sometimes people need to put it into. Is The Godfather the greatest American production or American-made film of all time? No, I just it's just that's just such a crazy thing to put on a film. <laughs> like <laughs> really a crazy thing to put on any kind of piece of art. Because I don't think I could really choose. I think it's pretty wild to even like choose something to that degree. It's something that takes so many moving parts and so many different things. To me, I almost look at like Gone with the Wind because of how like important it was for the genre itself and for the the medium itself and for you know the culture that we kind of grew because of it. You know, and I think it, we still talk about it and we analyze it to this day, and it's like this massive grand thing but i just don't i just can't really like label things as that for me it's insane i just have to go to like my personal opinion and how i feel about it overall you know everything of the genres i like the actors i like how i like the actual characters and the story and everything that comes together to make a film it's so hard to specifically put this massive label on a thing but what what would you say do you would you lean into that and say yeah maybe it is yeah, it, it, maybe it is. I mean, one thing I thought about, and I think I said earlier on the podcast, thinking about this maybe being the best production, and you know, compare it to like Lord of the Rings, which I love the production of that. I know the story of that production so well, and it mm-hmm. kind of mirrors in some ways where like it was this little, essentially the spirit of an indie film wanting you know to be made this like great epic, and no one was giving it the kind of like actual, uh, actual degree of like positivity or sincerity to it in terms of like responding to it whereas the filmmakers are like we're just going to make this anyways we're going to show you how good it is it's the same thing i think with the godfather has that spirit of like of an indie filmmakers like fuck you i'm going to make this great movie and they do it it's a great production there's so many great stories and things to talk about with it um yeah it's really hard to call something best i uh i went to uh, the overall ranking for all the movies that i have right now and it would sit in in the top 10 of my ratings it would be the ninth movie in terms of rating at a 99 and that's just like how it, it's sorted so there's eight other 99 slash 100 movies along with this so yeah it's probably a top 10 best picture winner top 10 movie you know of all time um definitely i think has to be put there but the best of all time is really hard to say because it might not even be the best movie in its own trilogy so interesting yeah so interesting so john i i had to ask that question which i'm pretty sure we know the answer to so we i think we'd be pretty quick with this is the godfather worthy of the best picture award of 1972 of course but that makes me so excited for the godfather part two baby yes of course this this is worthy it should have won every award it was nominated for including all three best supporting actors should have been tied to win the cash should have won an Oscar. Every single person in this movie should have won an Oscar. It is so great. Um, so it's definitely worthy award. No doubt. No question. Just like 
even though I feel like the last few minutes of us even talking about it, it felt like stupid to give any negativity to it. It's <laughs> pretty great. So that's pretty much it for the Godfather for now. I think there's a lot more we get to talk about. So one thing I wanted to ask you, John, is what happens next? Oh, wow. Interesting. I'm not prepared for this at all, but let me think. Okay. So the door gets closed. Or at least what 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 do you want to see happen next? Like what like what do you think about could possibly the Godfather part Man. 2 be about? That's such a good question cuz like not many people are in this kind of space. You have to be pretty young. Most people our age have seen both of these movies. I'm in a pretty unique spot that I've never seen either 2 or 3 or Coda, the remake of 3. Well, Coda is just like a, so, a like a like a one or two edits they make to it. Yeah, I shouldn't say remake. Yeah. I uh, director's cut yeah. of the third film. Thank you. So Michael, it's so hard because I know aspects of 2 and 3. I know All right, fly- so I know well, there's well, flashbacks. Say, say the aspects yeah, that you know. So I obviously know that De Niro we're in, we're seeing some flashbacks. Um, I know there's some scene where he's got like a gun that's on fire for some reason. Not sure why the gun itself is like in f- on fire for some reason. I don't know why I've seen that scene. I've just like <laughs> seen reference to that for some reason. So I'm assuming we're getting flashbacks that are then kind of leading up to like how he gets to America, how the whole kind of mob connection starts in America. Maybe that kind of mirrors Michael's journey in Italy. And maybe that's why I feel not as fond of that part of the movie. Uh, other than that aspects of it, though, we obviously have to go back to Al Pacino as Michael and we have to see where his, his kind of reign is. I would have to imagine we're still playing on that familiar drama and that issue of, you know, how much can you let your wife in on the family business? So maybe that kind of gets involved. Maybe we get her like cheating on him or something like that goes down that rabbit hole. That's that's kind of drama central maybe that's too much though for like a mafia film and it's just more about everyone trying to get back at michael now that he murdered half of the actual mob and and all the leaders so ending the movie on that kind of high note you would have to expect like you said you go bigger you got more of a threat michael's constantly in fear of like his family being hurt or him being killed now i don't know where you could possibly end part two then knowing that there's a third film that then takes place with him later on so that means we know Michael doesn't die. He comes in for a third film. Yeah. At that point, man, I don't know. Like one of the family members has to die. Like Fredo has to die. There's some sort of involvement of him. So we know that in two, there's got to be some sort of dramatic ending. Wait, why? Either why do you one of his that? close family members dying? Because I just feel like you need something dramatic to end the second movie, right? Like if if we know Michael survives, like it's not like the death of him in this film. We know the third film is all about, or I know that just from context over the years. But I'm assuming that something big has to happen in the second film to make it impactful. I don't think his wife dies. And (laughs) Fredo is not talked about enough in this movie to be this like significant part of culture like I've talked about. So I think there's definitely more involvement in The Godfather, you mean? Yeah, I think he's like not represented enough in The Godfather to be as impacted on culture as he is. So I think in some way he's kind of the downfall of Michael in some way, if I had to take a guess. But yeah, how do we end it? I don't know. Something like dramatic has to happen because he can't just do the same ending to the original film. He can't just go again and kill a bunch of the top dogs in the mafia. 
So maybe he kills like the big villain of the second movie. I don't know. That just sounds so generic when you're talking about the Godfather, you know? I we're, oh, we're just gonna have to wait, John. And I, I'm, <laughs> I, I love, I love the, these predictions. So, um, yeah. Is there anything else you have to say about the Godfather? Any, uh, any last words? Yeah, I had to pat us both on the back. This might be over a three-hour podcast, which is just insane. One, just this movie deserves it. But we got through this entire thing without doing any impressions. <laughs> so I think there's only one way that we can. <clears throat> I'm gonna lean back. Oh boy, I got I got a fair little line I want to say. I, ne- I never wanted this for you, Michael. It should have been Governor Corleone. Mayor Corleone. I never wanted this for you, Michael. Yeah, you've been <laughs> practicing your. Uh, I knew a good Sonny being shot up. <laughs> <laughs> and bada bing! <laughs> like, this podcast always goes off the rails at the end, so. That's The Godfather. <laughs> uh, it's a great movie. There's really, I think that could have just been the one second review of it. It's great. So thanks for listening to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.